Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency, and the cybercriminals are hiding in the conversation. Cybercriminals use social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified these 13 types and shows you how you can protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection. Get your free ebook at securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. That's securityweekly.com forward slash Barracuda. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. Don't forget to visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe, where you can subscribe to all the shows on the Security Weekly Network. Join our Discord channel and follow us on social media. Also, right there on the top of that page is where you can find our episode starter packs, a collection of Spotify playlists with some of our favorite episodes. These are great if you're new to the show and want some amazing segments and interviews to listen to. And now the security news. Where do you gentlemen want to start this evening? Real quick. Really quick. AirTag Tools has already received its first pull request. Sweet. And it's been accepted. Thanks, Adrian. <laughs> Adrian Sanabria actually fixed some spelling mistakes and so forth. So Awesome. Thanks, yeah. Adrian. Thanks, Adrian. <clears throat> what's uh what's top of the mind? Do we want to kick things off? Oh, <sighs> How about Confluence that hard-coded password thing? Yeah, I was going to say, start with something easy, right? Uh, hard-coded passwords in the Confluence app have been linked on Twitter. In it, I should say in a, <clears throat> excuse me, Confluence app. Yeah. So there's one app. What was it called? Questions for questions Confluence. Questions for Confluence. Yes. Allows users to quickly receive support for common questions involving Atlassian products. Um, the password was leaked on Twitter because the app creates a hard-coded not a username and password. So there was the, what was the username? I'm, I'm lost where it was. Disabled system, system user. Disabled system user. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Lee has got Disabled it in his number one in, story. Yeah, Lee's in, it's in Lee's number one story right in the notes. Oh. Now they, they also said that like you don't have to actively have this app. And so when you install the app, you get this default set of credentials. But if you uninstall the app, Sounds like that that username and password could still the account could still exist. So you have to make right. sure you go through your <clears throat> Confluence instances, um, which is just sounding more and more like a really bad idea to not run these in Atlassian's cloud and have them host them for you <laughs> with all the vulnerabilities that you you'd be responsible for if you were uh, running them yourself. Well, I mean, arguably, you might still be responsible for some data leakage and so forth. Oh, yeah. If you still is, have responsibilities, yeah. just yeah. not, I think, as many. Right. Right. Because right. so, Atlassian takes care of some of that. Yeah. So my right. understanding I is that this particular. Yeah. And my <laughs> understanding was that uh, this uh, user allowed access to all of the stuff within Confluence. Right. Including all the support tickets and all that type of stuff. And you think about all those that types of information that ends up in those support tickets. Like yeah. that could be potentially damaging for a company, whether well, it's it, it was or not. It wasn't just view. It wasn't just view access though. Too Correct. that was the other scary thing is like the ability to store data and maybe have persistence or access later. Like yeah, there's a lot of info and confluence and yep. Uh, outside of outside of the um, the restricted pages, you had access to just about everything. So, mm-hmm. oops, mm-hmm. that was not good. No, it was kind of. I'm it very, was not. I'm very curious um, how they go about because I understand why they have the account in there in order to be able to c- 
communicate and set up that user for the chat function? Like, how else is someone going to authenticate into a um, an isolated, you know, container or container app in order to do something from a central location? Right? You have to have some sort of remote user that has the ability across all of their clients in order to do that. So I'm curious how they're going to go about fixing this. And this just goes back to this goes back to our general advice: don't have things exposed to the internet. Like leverage a VPN so that people get behind at least some sort of authentication portal to get to these applications, regardless oh, of what it is. And Lee, I, I like how you also put the password in our show notes. So the passwords for this account is actually in our episode show notes, which is amazing. Yeah, and the link to the SEO Twitter for us. Yep. Yeah, and a link to the Twitter account that uh, that published it. At least one of them. From my understanding, yeah. it might have been at least the one. password wasn't like god awful. Like it's like not god, having like god. Sex, yeah. secret, love. Yeah, it was. Golf. It's a decent password. Money. That's not horrible. Hey. I mean, I, I mean, know, the username is in the password, but not. There's numbers in between it anyway. <laughs> There's that, that there's that you could easily script inside of your password dictionaries, but uh, there, there's a hundred percent a hash cat rule for username and password with, with numbers in between them. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You, I mean, you could test all digits and yeah, that's not the uh, six, the six, seven, but the six, seven, oh, eight at the end is, I mean, that's adding was a little Jenny's number. It's close to Jenny's number. Come on. I was I was thinking of uh, MS sixty seven oh eight, but right? that's just me. Oh damn! <laughs> oh damn! That's evil. <laughs> that's eerie, actually. <laughs> um, I did want to talk about. I don't know what maybe thing we're talking about vulnerabilities and what what types they are. Reminded me. I don't know how it popped into my head, but I want to talk about privilege escalation. Okay. Uh oh, here we go. An authentication bypass. And like what those terms mean, because this this was also a case. So I was reading Intel Security Advisory SA Triple Zero Seventy Five, which is a vulnerability from two thousand and seventeen having to do with what the researchers called an authentication bypass, but Intel called an escalation of privilege. Because it, if you think about it, if you don't have any privileges, but a vulnerability then lets you gain privileges, mm -hmm. that is an escalation of privilege. Yep. But that's not how we think of escalation of privilege. Escalation of privilege should imply that I already have some level of privilege, not mm -hmm. zero privileges. If I go from zero privileges to privileges... <laughs> Without knowledge of valid credentials, that's authentication. That's bypass. authentication bypass. <laughs> yep. If now this, you're just being pedantic. <laughs> it, it is. Yeah. That's Josh's no, it, job. It is that's Josh's job. But right. But this also had some of that. Uh, some of that in. So ironically, if I'm reading the news for this week, because I had sent that to Tyler, I'm like, dude, check this out. Am I crazy or not? Like this. This is authentication bypass, not escalation of privilege. Um, but in this story, and it's my story number nine. Um, in the article, it says security researchers discovered a serious vulnerability in the Zixil firewall, allowing for local privilege escalation. However, a remote attacker could also exploit the flaw, adding to the severity of the issue. And it turns out that's from another exploit for a yet a different vulnerability that gains them local privileges. 
So there, and again, this is article is almost the opposite of what I was talking before. Is making local privilege escalation into a remote exploit by chaining exploits together. This is, this is chained remote. Yeah, yeah. chain remote chain. code execution. Yeah. Yeah. We need to indicate if we're chaining. I'm not saying this is bad because likely if you haven't applied one patch, you haven't applied more than one patch on your 6 cell firewall. So like there's that. But we need to know all of these things and understand them at the level that we're talking about so we can accurately evaluate risk. And so like because saying privilege escalation in our minds we think maybe local privilege escalation right i mean remote privilege escalation equals authentication bypass in in my mind i don't know maybe it's just me no that's that's an important distinction remote because privilege escalation typically means you have access at that point at least for local privilege escalation if you're doing it remotely then that indicates some sort of execution, which is remote code execution right. with the potential for privilege escalation. And if that is being done remotely, that is an entirely different threat profile and yeah. risk evaluation. Yeah. You have but to Tyler, do. I, I, this is exactly where I was going. You, you, you hit the nail on the head that like working in the opposite way. If I have an authentication bypass, maybe that doesn't get me the highest level of privilege, but there's a local privilege escalation also in maybe that same version of the software that allows me to then escalate uh, to root. Or there's an authentication bypass, and then there's a command injection vulnerability. So I might be able to log in, but not gain operating system level command access. I can just control what's in the web interface. Those are also very different things. In all things we need to be aware of to properly validate the risk or invalidate the risk, whatever the case may be. Josh, you're, you're smiling. Uh, I was checking out something else. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> all right, all, all uh, the memes uh, back, back to the show. Josh, analysis. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, <laughs> it's dangerous uh, around this I, podcast I tonight. I, I just executed a privilege escalation against Josh. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Totally, totally bypassed all boundaries. And, uh, never mind. Anyway, oh, okay, keep going. I'm sorry. You, you said really something, to, sir? What's that? <laughs> you do have to think about the, the privilege. Like when you talk about authenticated versus unauthenticated, if you're taking the stance yes. of unauthenticated, is that a privilege with inside of an application? Because there are roles in which you're a guest, you're unauthenticated, and a privilege escalation can lead to a different role. Therefore, that is a local privilege or a privilege escalation in and of itself. But the unauthenticated um, or authentication bypass, I think to me, if we're going to get pedantic and, and look at the nuances of this, really implies that there is an authentication method in place for protection, security, or integrity. Right. And so if that is the case and you're able to get around that because of a privilege escalation, then that is authentication bypass. If there's nothing in place there, then that privilege escalation, that could be considered privilege escalation just because of the vulnerability that allows you to go to something other, otherwise from a guest or unauthenticated standpoint. I, I, so think, I think first we really need to establish if there are, if authentication is required to access yes. the software or service, right, is the first yep. thing. The second thing is what levels of privilege are there 
so like you said, like guest access. So if it's a, a local privilege escalation, but you need to have a, which means you need to have some type of access to the application, but the application allows guest access without necessarily a password, yeah. or there's a self-service way for you to create a guest password and a guest account. And that account then uh, through a vulnerability in the software can be used to exploit a privilege escalation vulnerability within the application that needs to be spelled out. And also I, I think the, if there are other vulnerabilities involved, communicating whether or not that's something within the application or if there's like a breakout for <coughs> command injection or access to the operating system layer or some deeper layer within the application, I think is really important yeah, sim well. Simply viewing, simply escalating the privileges and, and being able to view something different is one thing. Being able to have different permissions within inside the application where you have something like code execution, where you're bringing in a different vulnerability for code executions, either via the the escalation of privileges or by the changing of roles, which gives you different permission, or a vulnerability for remote code execution or local code execution. Those are all different risk profiles that need to be addressed in different ways. So again, you're right. The more you can spell out, especially when we're talking about technical vulnerabilities, the clearer you can be about what the issue is, the easier it is for protections, mitigating and compensating controls to be put into place and people to evaluate their risk profile and mature, you know, whatever they need to do in order to ensure they're not going to be exploited. This stuff's important. Um, back to the Intel SA00075 in, from 2017, that was an authentication bypass in Intel's active management technology that over the web port you could uh, that gets created by this process I'll spare you the gory details but there's a port one for HTTP one for HTTPS if one were to be curious and go to Shodan and see how many systems within Shodan are responding on that port you'd you'd find over 3600 of said systems that are responding on said port and in this particular case it gives you access to the AMT, Active Management Technology, conceivably from from, from HTTP. From HTTP. That's not good. So if there's an authentication bypass in there, the attacker essentially <clears throat> owns your system. I mean, like you've basically given the attacker control of your system, right? Because from Probably, what I understand, like usability-wise in AMT, it exists yep. so I can remotely rebuild the operating system, for example. Yeah, so there's that. That's but don't do. Please don't do that unless you have permission. That's what I'm saying. Or unless it's Russia, either or. Or I mean, we you can tell from show day which countries there are, and I'm just saying, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell. Not as many, not there's tell. not as many over there <laughs> as you need. Not that not that our friends looked. <laughs> it wasn't. No, we didn't do that. Our friend Bob, he may have looked. Mm -hmm. In any case, yeah. So I think uh, I think it's I, it's important to understand. Uh, all of these aspects. IOS of had uh, iOS had a pretty rough week too. Like if you have not updated your iOS device, please, for the love of God, update your iOS device and maybe do that yeah. before you go to Black Hat or DefCon and or both. I've been hearing that. I've been hearing. Yeah. And myself. Yeah, there was a substantial amount of fixes. Uh, everything from um, um, there's uh, memory corruption in I think it was the the web WebTC for Chrome on yeah. iOS. Yeah. There was a bunch of audio buffer overflows. 
there was a remote code. I think it was a remote code execution. There was there was something uh, with SMB uh, on Mac OS, uh, which was a, a pretty big deal that allowed some pretty serious kernel uh, kernel level privileges. So uh, all of the iOS updates should be applied to all of the devices, including your Mac OS, your Mac or whatever the TV one is, your watch, your phone. All of the things that you're going to all bring. of your Apple all things your- must be updated, especially if you're yes. attending a conference like this. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, um, Office macros <laughs> again? Again? Oh no. no! So it was it was on it was on again, then it was off again, and now it's on again. Did I get that right? Like it was off, then it was on, then it was off, and now we're we're on we're on by default disabling office macros because it, one of the things that i read from in this article was there was this weird so, so by so by on again you mean actually off because the macros are off, off now. okay off, as off, opposed to on off the feature is feature is the feature on. is enabled which turns macros off oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> what tyler said got it crystal fucking clear <laughs> Clear so, as mud. It said organizations that relied on sharing documents via cloud services and hadn't taken appropriate precautions to denote which external servers should be treated as official company sources found their macros blocked by default. So off by default. Voiced their displeasure loudly enough that Microsoft relented, right? And went back to off again. It must have been a big damn customer. Which the feature was saying. off, but so macros were enabled by default again if that's not clear enough for you but that's why it was off again and they seem to have i don't know talked done something for those customers most likely uh and now now it's on again which means macros are off again by default which is which is so stupid like again like you can modify this if you're any large enterprise that's big enough to complain to microsoft to get this turned back on like you should have the ability to deploy the GPO that bypasses and yeah. disables yeah. that feature. So like this is a feature you can disable anyway. An organization <laughs> large enough to have Active Directory or Azure AD and have someone with enough skills to implement a group policy can push this policy to all computers in the domain that says macros are either enabled or not. Correct. Is that am I correct in stating that? You can get even more granular. You can have protected spaces, where they're from, whether they get the mark of the web. Like this is especially if you get into the attack surface reduction rules right. and the additional uh, AS, ASDMs for Office products. You can granularly control this, and uh, you can apply these GPOs at the OU level, the computer level, filter it. Like again, any Active Directory administrator right. or their salt should have been able to do this, and they should have been on. Anyway, accounting. So, so I can say the accounting department in an OU, the accounting department can have macros enabled because they need it to be able to do their job from a certain location at a certain time on these computers. Yes, 100%. so it's not just on again. It's not just on or off. It, there's a lot more configuration is what you're describing, Tyler, to either allow or disallow this functionality in with a lot of different parameters around it, which which is smart, and you should do that yes. and limit it, but also be working towards trying to. Get rid of these just altogether, so you can just turn it off. Yeah. Like my recommendation, turn this crap off everywhere. I mean, not the. It can I just be crap. as simple as on or off. Like you can yeah. enable yeah. or disable macros like globally and done that. The the problem here was Microsoft just 
did the disable by default. Now you just need to enable that, which brings us to, I think, one of your stories, Paul, which is the, the Windows 11 RDP uh, hardening, where it does a lockout for RDP after 10, 10 bad password attempts. Like this is a common ransomware tactic to get remote uh, remote access to a computer. This has been available and it's in the GPO for Windows 10 and has been a feature for a long time. In fact, the setting that they're using in Windows 11 has been there for a long time. It's just but wait, I don't understand. Na- RDP is off by default, which is interesting. We're talking about defaults, right? Is it uh, off by default? I get well. It maybe would. it depends on which version of Windows and whether you're connected to a domain or not. And also, there you go. I mean, to your point, fire, Tyler, right? Depends on your domain. Depends on your domain policy. That service could be off. Right. Your firewall could be configured to be completely <laughs> off, or just allow it from certain networks and not others. Right? This is again. There's a lot of configuration you can put around Active Directory. But the yeah, by default RDP is on, but your firewall is protecting you, and based on like how you've hardened it, oh, or maybe that was what it is. Yeah, running, yeah, yeah. Your connection, version. but. This is this is the password attempts. There's a lockout duration and a lockout attempt. So if someone tries to by default in Windows 10 and below, if you you can try different passwords against RDP and it's not going to lock that account out. Wait, so but wait, the service. default is 10 times. I believe the default's 10 times. Yeah, 10 attempts. So if I if I've tried 10 incorrect passwords, I probably don't know the password. Like, you like probably don't know the password. Like seriously, like 10, like even uh, so, I get to like nine. I've gone through all the passwords that I think like I could remember or find somewhere. If you think about it, we've all worked in computers and IT for a really long time. When you're on try number nine, like you, you just know like this is a this is a freaking and that, this is a long well, like, I mean also, but there is like did I type that password right the first time? Like let me try it again. <laughs> right? Like yeah. wait, was the was the first letter capital or not? Let me try it with the first letter capital and then did I enter that correctly when I made it the first? Th- All right, so like then there's four. Right? So then then your year, you got to get check your years. You only go yeah. back like three. Years. Then I'm like, wait, which special character was I using at the time to get around the complexity record? Was it an exclamation point? Was it a dash? And then in okay, so maybe there's six or seven. So still my point when you get to nine or ten, like you, yep. there's. The, very few. So again, like when have you guessed? A, I mean, other than a penetration test, when have you or unauthorized access that your friend <laughs> told you about? Uh, when have you guessed correctly on the tenth time for a password? Anyone can remember a time no, where in the tenth time not. you're like, "Wow, I tried nine different variations after, of my." And the tenth time I got it. After about the third time, I go to my password manager. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I think ten is no, ten is pretty fair. Ten is fair. No. That's and that's mm-hmm. the point. Like the the. The problem here is with the macro one, by default, we're just trying to protect everybody by default. Right. Like this is the default. You can change that. That's fine. Same with this RDP one. Microsoft has went to the stance on Windows 11 where the default is now there's a lockout for RDP. That stops a bunch of ransomware. This setting has been available and is in a GPO sure, and yeah. has been configured for a long time. So you have that ability to lock down, harden, or loosen the guidelines. So but I don't know why 10, what is it? Out. After 10, what is it going to give you an hour? Before you can try ten again, it's a ten, ten minute minutes. Ten minutes is ten minutes is like uh, that doesn't even matter at that That'd point. After nice. ten, like I'm breaking yeah. up my local privilege escalator or like something else. <laughs> like is uh, you know I'm calling up yeah, my really my, my help desk going reset my password, reset the password for this or or whatever. Yeah, so yeah. even ten minutes doesn't really after ten attempts. 
that's not really that bad. I mean, what they're really trying to do is they're trying to balance this, right? Because one of one of the main concerns and one of the reasons it hasn't been default is you end up with a denial of service opportunity where you can go and lock out an entire organization and account by password spraying, you know, over 10 attempts, over 10 minutes. Right. And then in a situation where the help desk is overloaded and they can't get back into things. So, no, know, that's, yeah, well, that's, that's been my concern with account lockout for a long time. And I know many of us is you can cause that pretty massive denial service if you were to simultaneously lock out accounts and they're all locked out for 10 minutes. And then, uh, you know, 10 minutes and 30 seconds later, you lock it out again. And that's why they're trying to do this whole balancing, right? Like they're trying to get the general consumer, the general Windows 10 configuration, the defaults to a more secure state. Like don't yeah. allow macros unless you need them. Have a lockout state. Okay. If you get 10, like the general user, you know, you're not going to get ransomware spreading, trying more than 10 passwords. That stops a ton of things. So Microsoft's always had this issue of trying to be so balanced that it is always in the consumer's favor, always in the end user's favor so that they feel good and and can always operate without an issue. That makes sense. And I see where that's at, but they've now trying to get to the stance where they don't want everybody ransomed and we've got a real pandemic and they're spending a lot of money in order to combat all of these security issues. So let's start from a more default secure stance and then configure the the uh, the legacy stuff as needed, which is a better place to be. Absolutely. Um, I want to transition to let's talk about Josh while we're talking about the next story. Read my story number two. Take a break from from memes, and then my story number three. Uh, <laughs> in the meantime, I want to talk about. Uh, oh, I mean, let's talk about Yuffie rootkits. Why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got a couple of those, don't this, we? Uh-huh. We have well, several, we, yeah. Well, what's, you know what's interesting? What I, well, anyway, there there have been there's a long history of Yuffie rootkits that I can date back to at least 2015 with hacking and, team. And there was inter- at least the first time that I, I can find the first occurrence <clears throat> of that. I mean, and there's research that, that research predates that uh, actively finding a rootkit that hides in UEFI. I date back to hacking team in 2015. I believe it was 2015. Um, and then, you know, all their articles kind of dated back later than that. But the hacking team for me was was one of the first ones. So this latest one. The the irony is I almost added the story and went, oh, no, we covered this one like three weeks ago. No, it's different. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> like, different. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. No, it's different. Yeah, it is yeah, funny that this one. is now becoming a, a mainstream topic, which is important, right? Like. Paul, you and I have talked about this. Like mm-hmm. the first, the first step to actually getting some results around this, because this is probably the most critical, the most critical security thing that I think executives are going to have to deal with in the next year or two, is ensuring that your hardware and your baseline is secure. Otherwise, all your security products don't matter. So the fact that this is coming out in the public and we're seeing this used in the wild is very valid timing, but it also is is terrifying because that means once it's in the public, that means that it is being leveraged way more than than what's being discovered. And, and that's a problem. We have mm-hmm. a visibility gap. And obviously, Eclipsium is one of the only places trying to address this right now, and we'll see more of these places start to pop up. But uh, we're way behind the curve on this, um, I think, more so than any of the other things that we've had to combat in, in the security realm for a little while. This one was really interesting in the way they described it. And I think as a little bit of background, right, you got to go to the different rings. And 
for me it starts with ring minus three ring minus three is where something like intel me operates which is prior to uefi um yep. which i would classify as ring minus two then in everything i've seen and i've validated this with multiple sources right the ring minus one is your hypervisor Rings, oh yeah ring zero will be your kernel now there's other things yep. at, at play here with these the basic rings right and then you get into ring three is your applications there are rings one and two in there and you can study operating systems and understand how those are at play and those differ per operating system if memory serves me correctly but when we go down to ring minus three that's stuff like intel me um because it lives on a cpu outside of the main cpu in a separate uh process Understanding this down to a very granular level of detail would require like a lot of time and explanation and goes beyond my skill level. And I have to go to my coworkers at Eclipsium to explain, <laughs> explain to me a lot of the, you know, these, these concepts. Um, but what struck me about this particular UEFI rootkit, now that we understand this is operating at ring minus two, what's happening. And I'm uncertain how or if the Windows boot process works kind of similar to the Linux boot process. Um, but we typically think of the UEFI process um, starts to load the bootloader in this process, right? And the bootloader loads the kernel and kernel continues with the rest of the operating system. Um, the way I understand it a little better on the Linux side is because they had to introduce shim to support secure boot. And so your UEFI loads shim in secure boot uh, mode. Shim is signed as a piece of software that can participate in the boot process. Shim then loads the bootloader, which is typically Grub. Grub loads the kernel. Kernel loads modules and the rest of the operating system. In this diagram, they show something similar to in Windows, where uh, in the execution chain... Um, there was uh, the EFI boot services. There was, oh, the opposite. There was the boot manager. Then there was the Windows OS loader and then the Windows kernel. And that's what I don't, I'm not as familiar with the Windows boot process as I am with the Linux uh, boot process. And so the reason that's important is because this particular strain of malware hooks all of these processes as it comes through. So it hooks and a hook is to transfer execution, right? And be able to run code as part of that run different code from the hook in the execution process so the malware right. hooks the efi boot service that then that hook hooks the boot manager the hook in the boot manager then hooks the windows os loader the os loader hook then hooks into the kernel so that you can uh do certain things within the windows kernel which means you get this malware and it embeds itself inside of you efi you can have a completely brand new operating system on there and your kernel's going to get hooked and, and have malware in it. Right. And there was a specific goal that they had within the kernel, the shell code that they loaded in the kernel to do specific things. Uh, that's all right. detailed in, you got to read the Kaspersky. I linked to the Ars Technica one, but uh, the Kaspersky is the one that, that broke this particular one. So that and was that, really... Because it's, coming, because it's coming from the hardware level too, the other thing that people have to realize is all of the security tools that they have loaded and visibility that they have loaded with inside of the OS doesn't matter because if you're coming in at the kernel level prior to boot, that allows you to use things like a, a kernel rootkit that has 
uh, memory hiding capabilities, it has processless hiding capability, it even has memory shim and, and um, protection locations that your EDR, even if it has hooks with inside of the kernel, does not have visibility to because it's able to protect itself. That's Correct. the whole point of a kernel. What, what really struck me to that point about this article, Tyler, something I quoted from the article, and they say, this specific point in the execution was chosen because at this stage, the boot manager is loaded in memory but isn't yet running. Yes. And I want to say yeah. probably <laughs> similar to the way the kernel is, right? Like the kernel's not running. It's so like it can't do anything, but it's in memory. And since I've hooked the EFI, the UFI process, I can inject stuff in there when it's loaded but not running. I was like, oh, that's... Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yep, the initialization pieces that happen, like just to just because the memory has to be there in order to do an init, in order to load the code for you know certain buses uh, right. where you're calling UFEI because that runs on an SPI bus, which is entirely separate, and that has to interact with the hardware that then pushes stuff to the memory that then loads code that does initialization pieces. So all of that interaction uh, has the ability to live in in memory. And also hide itself very early in the process to do other interesting things. There, there's um, pre-boot uh, kits out there that can shim memory in order to bypass authentication for the OS uh, completely in memory without affecting or, right. or adding a user account, leaving traces on the hard drive, all of those things. And I'm starting because to learn about that. I'm starting to learn, Tyler, along the, those lines about that that time window Yep. in SMM system management mode where it's supposed to be protected but there's a time window when it's not protected and a lot of the attacks and what we call smm attacks are attacking that specific process in you efi in the boot process where it's in that system management mode but not but not really and there's some because well, it's pulling keys it's passing keys from the tpm to the smm the smm is doing the init and initializing the kernel so those keys are within inside a memory at that point and they've leveraged those keys right. and now the code is starting so the keys have already been the secure part between the tpm and the smm are already there and the initialization is happening it is that point after there where you know just like if you've got uh, bitlocker on your laptop once you've started it up and you've rebooted or or whatever your os doesn't need to have you have something plugged in or have the keys in the key the keys in memory and has been mm -hmm. used so the os is able to function because it's decrypted at that point very very similar at a much lower level scale yeah i had i had a story about that too with the linux and if you're dual booting windows in linux there's some brace condition where like you trip bitlocker every time because of something that's happening and i think i put that that story so, in there but in any case back to uefi uh rootkits this one was called cosmic strand the first occurrence of this happened in 20 12. I think they traced it back to 2012, but it wasn't truly discovered um, until recently. 2016? Yeah. Yeah. And then they talk about the, the history, too, and you, you get into the history, and uh, I'm going to be working on this, but you know, you've got Lojax, Mosaic Regressor, E-Spectre, FinSpy, Moonbounce, TrickBoot, um, which was also part of this, too, and now Cosmic Strand. So I, I had a question. And that was, I mean, I thought it was interesting that Cosmic Strand actually adds OS-level accounts to the system when, like Tyler said, you could probably just hook, hook the authentication system. But how do you how do you clear it out? I mean, it seems like <laughs> you're, you can't just flash the BIOS here. You can't flash the UFI, right? No, or no, come on, Lee, it's easy. It, it, it's not hard, man. Go to the store. You, you hire an industrial shredder. 
you feed the machine into the shredder. It's gone. It's not a big deal. Oh, it's eradicated for sure. <laughs> sort you know, of a one-way deal know, there. Lee, that's a really good question. And I was actually joking this week. I'm like, you just ship every one of your users a spy programmer and you give them the capability to, to read and write to this flash chip. I mean, that's, that's how you'd have to remove this. Right. Right. Because right. if the operating system is hooked in the way you're flashing your BIOS is through or your UFI is through the operating system, they're going to hook those functions so it doesn't override itself. So you've got to have some out-of-band way to update the, mem the basically the regions on the spy flash that hold the malicious right. code inside of UEFI. I would love and to know like if they are sophisticated enough to be to, protecting yeah, themselves right. against flashes like that. Like, I have not seen... I've not seen anything that says that they do that. Like, if you're going to go to this level to have this level of implant kit at UFEI, like, I would hope that would be something you consider and you have the capability to do it. So yeah, why are I you would, not? I would but, love to see that code because that could be used for the good side as well as the dark side. If you can, you know, if you we, can prevent updates like that in the kernel level, you can also prevent that stuff from getting there in the first place if you control that process, right? I go back to some of the early trainings I did with Ed Scotus. He's like, well, a great way to prevent against rootkits is to already have a rootkit installed. Just looking for new rootkits <laughs> being installed. Yep. I'm like, well, this is the same kind of concept. I want to prevent something, a UEFI rootkit. So, like, I want to be there already to prevent that from happening. But it's not as simple as I describe right. it. But that's oh. yeah. Hence why Eclipsium has a great product that helps you with this. Yes. <clears throat> yes. So 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 having having uh, having Larry wave solder some new com components on the board isn't really an option, is it? Well, <laughs> that would always bypass that, right? And mm -hmm. the you'd also have to get the same the same chip with the same code that was yes, compatible. I know. With Correct. All of those are signed. So now we're like I I think. At some point, like I, I imagine, someone was thinking about interchangeable SPIs for rotational periods to ensure validation. Like, sure, that was a thought, and then we start to think about what that actually means. That's probably not a great idea. So, well, yeah, because like with, with Intel, I mean, you can't write new functionality, but you can remove functionality and then flash back the right. original. But you need the original first. So you have to read everything off the chip. You can yep. remove components from it because they're individually signed and then you can write back something smaller with less functionality but that's only because you had the original flash ROM that you pulled off and again I don't yeah, so, recommend I have even, a blog post on this coming out uh, in, in the next couple of weeks I'll follow on to the one that I posted this week this part two where I talk about <laughs> Intel ME and it that was one of my realizations of that is how that that process uh, and this is specific to ME which has a different region on on your spy flash which also means that the 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 dependencies, if there are dependencies or security implementations set up for the board or for the organization uh, as the boot process is happening, if you start to remove that functionality and it's not there and it's a dependency, then it actually fails and you end up with a crashing system. Or a so system that, a after, that after 30 minutes turns off because you haven't put functionality in there for anti-theft, which was a part of Intel yep. ME since took low, that, low jacks. They, yeah they since took that out but um that's what was happening when we some of the original researchers were doing this testing with removing or disabling rather intel me was after 30 minutes their computers were shutting off because they didn't put in the modules to enable those checks it basically thought the the machine was stolen and was turning off
<laughs> which, yeah, which, which is pretty interesting. So you know, all this stuff is interesting. Um, definitely check out the the article and and, and read through it. Um, and contact myself and or Tyler. Uh, you know, if you have questions. Uh, and certainly, I have people I can ask questions. I'm very lucky in that respect. Paul, Paul, Paul is way, way more qualified. I, I have some highly quality and all super nice people um, that, awesome. that answer my questions yes. on this stuff. So like I, but it was funny. Like I sound really smart now when I talk about this stuff, but like I, I can't take all the credit. Like I have an unfair advantage that I can ask my coworkers who most of them worked for Intel before too. Like I can go ask them uh, and, and they give me very definitive uh, answers. Well, well see, so. the thing is that you sound smart because now you are smart because you knew the right people to ask. And I you, listened. Ma- you made industry contacts and you learned something. And I did my homework too. <clears throat> oh yeah. yeah I, I did, but what's, what's to my that, credit, I did. I did what, do my own homework. What's that thing that you learned many years ago back working for the lottery company? Yes. You, you had to go try it. You had and to struggle go, with it for a right. little bit before you went and asked the question. I just will come out of the blue and ask questions. I'm like, guys, I've read like four or five articles on this and I still don't understand it. Right? Like, I make sure I do. Uh, I do my homework. That's important. We've talked about that on the on the show before. Yep. Make sure you go check out their talk too at uh, is it, it's at DefCon. DefCon. Um, yeah. One bootloader to rule them all, Mickey yes. and Jesse. Ooh. Now what's interesting, I went back. <laughs> kind of a funny note. Uh, Mickey and Jesse both work for Eclipsium uh, on the research team, um, and they presented at Black Hat and DefCon many many years in 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 a row. Like you can go pretty far back, and I wanted to be able to like say their full names. On on it, you know this broadcast I was doing, and I was like, I went back to. I mean, I could have asked Mickey, but I went back because I didn't want to bug Mickey. And I I went back, and I'm like, well, I'll just watch some of their talks and see how they introduce themselves to understand, you know, how to pronounce Mickey's last name. Six talks. I went through six different talks from six <laughs> different conferences, and every single time they introduced themselves, "Hi, this is Mickey, and that's Jesse." Every single time. One time Alex <laughs> introduces them. Alex is one of the co-founders of Eclipsium. Alex introduces them. Alex goes, I'm Alex. This is Mickey and that's Jesse. I'm like, son of a bitch. I'm like, you know what? They're Mickey and Jesse. That's what it is. End of story. <laughs> I want to put together Synonymous, a little montage Synonymous of every together. time they've introduced themselves at a conference. It's always Mickey and Jesse. Okay, there we have it. <laughs> so Mickey and Jesse will be presenting at DEF CON. You should totally check out their talk. What uh, about Alex though? Because uh, you said Alex, Mickey, and Jesse. Yes. Okay. Well, well. Sorry, uh, I'm just, Alex I'm just, has Alex has co-presented with Mickey and Jesse gotcha. in the okay in the. Past. I'm just I'm just drawing yes. out a bad joke to <laughs> right. even longer. The Alex, Alex Mickey, and Jesse show. Yes. Yes. Who's on third? Um, oh, I want to oh. talk about um the software supply chain. Ooh. I want to trans- transition to that with respects to VMware. ESXi, it's TCP IP stack, and FreeBSD. This won't go anywhere horribly wrong, will it? <laughs> oh, it goes to horrible places, Larry. Oh, gosh. So, um, someone did this analysis. Who is it? A ZDI, Zero Day Initiative, did yep. this uh, analysis looking at the patch gap vulnerabilities in the VMware ESXi TCP IP stack. Now, it's saying the article. 
The most interesting outcome of this analysis is that ESXi's TCP IP stack is based on FreeBSD 8.2 and does not include security patches for vulnerabilities disclosed over the years since that release of FreeBSD. Oh, good Lord. This result has also prompted us to analyze the nature of vulnerabilities disclosed in other open source components used by VMware, such as OpenSLP and ISC DHCP. Once again, we observed the, that the most, uh, the most of the disclosed vulnerabilities had upstream patches before disclosure. Meaning, VMware used FreeBSD 8.2, Patches came out for 8.2, but they didn't back they didn't backport their patches, mm -hmm. those patches, into their own products. Because FreeBSD is licensed under the BSD license, which means VMware can use that mm -hmm. uh, for commercial purposes, even though it's open source code. Now, also, this post is absolutely amazing. And when you go on to, to read the rest of it, you totally should. They identify which version of FreeBSD was used, which version of the TCP IP stack, which vulnerabilities correlate. And identify the missing patches in the in the. I mean, the, the the article is absolutely amazing. But what I wanted to harp on specifically is the supply chain aspect of this. Is that you've got a product from a vendor that's using an open source product that mm -hmm. hasn't gone and fixed what is in that product, and because it's it's a whole suite of software. It's not just one piece of software. It's not like they just have one library, right? I mean, look at the friggin' TCP/IP stack that hasn't been patched. It is, and it is not a supply chain attack. Oh no! Oh. It is a it is a supply chain attack because VMware supplies this software to a host of other companies, a huge, huge glut of other companies. Right, but FreeBSD um, is there is in the supply chain because they're using their software, Josh. But bear with me, bear with me. But the the common concept of a supply chain attack is one where another company controls the software in your infrastructure or near your infrastructure, like SolarWinds Orion. So, um, you know, while, while this is a supply chain attack, it's not a supply chain attack where they could inject a, uh, a new update in the VMware thing and all of a sudden control everybody that uses VMware. Uh, you can use this to attack individual VMware installations, or maybe, depending on the vulnerabilities, to send out something that'll attack lots of them, you know, spread a net, if you will. <clears throat> but uh, but is that so how we is, define supply chain? Is that is that in my supply chain there's a third party that controls components and I do not have control of those components? Is well, that so, an inherent so aspect? This of is the same chain? kind of thing as when I say, can you define pen test, uh, <laughs> or can you define, um, good lord, in a, a good enough, you know, or change zero trust? Define zero trust, please. Okay. And have everybody agree on that definition, just good, to be clear. Good point. I'm sorry, Josh. I can't trust you to do that. <laughs> I mean, this is a great point. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm kind of with Paul on this in that you have a product, and part of that product is supplied by a third party. Yeah. FreeBSD being the third party. Free, free, yeah. FreeBSD, Agreed. open source or otherwise, being yep. that third party. Like, if I'm thinking about writing, you know, uh, a document that says, hey, we've got these. SBOM, software bill of materials. Mm -hmm. I would argue that that has to be in the software bill of materials that we use. Oh, absolutely. Components. And to me, that's that kind of indicates supply chain. It's not, I, okay. But it's not First a supply off, chain. But it's not a failure. However, on, but it's not a failure. I guess what Josh is saying, right? It's not a failure on FreeBSD's part. They produce no, the patches right. for their software. The failure is still on VMware for not adopting those fixes. 
to me, that falls under the umbrella of supply chain security. I agree right? entirely. Okay. I'm but just take, pointing out that people different, have different yeah. definitions. Yeah, and I we want to make sure that we're addressing the fact that there are different definitions out there. But I love this show that we this are, is a proper supply chain attack. Because like we did with authentication bypass privilege escalation, right? We're getting down in the details of what encompasses your supply chain security, right? It could be just to your point. There's a third party that VMware is using. Let's say they're using another third party that has commercial code that, that maybe hasn't produced, produced those fixes or has been compromised and we're incorporating their code into our code. In this case, exactly. it's an open source project and it's in our supply chain. They've produced the fixes. We just haven't pulled it into our product, right? Again, this all falls under the umbrella of a supply chain security problem. Right. Different types okay. of problems. All now let's get to the actual meat of the matter, which is that how bad is this? Now this was pretty. This was pretty bad. Well, I, are you meaning the the entire problem set? Or are you meaning the specific this example instance, in this yeah, article? I took that as this particular instance. This particular instance, the free BSD slash security patches that are missing in VMware stock. How bad are these vulnerabilities? Like I didn't look at the, the article. I apologize. Are these vulnerabilities so bad that they will enable somebody to attack a VMware installation, take control of it at rootkits, what that kind of thing, whatever? And there was. There was denial of service. There was some overflow pieces. There was a use after free. Yeah, uh, I believe because the stack, uh, there was uh, issues in the stack. There was CVEs all the way back to like 2013 that were applicable because oh, of geez. not backporting. There was uh, a num yeah, a, quite a number of CVEs of varying CVSS scores uh, in, in that they discovered. Now, what's also interesting is in order to uh, kind of debug and uh, dig into some of these vulnerabilities, I gathered from this article that since FreeBSD is open source, they could go debug some of these vulnerabilities using the open source components, and those were totally applicable to VMware's product because that's the version of the open source software they were using. So they didn't have to like go deconstruct what VMware had. They could use the open source uh, equivalents and actually and did some diffing. Uh, to to kind of validate that these this is the same uh, kind of sounds like something that our friends over at Qualys uh, may yes. end up looking at and dropping stuff on. But. Yeah, so I'm I'm thinking about this operationally. You know, you get the guy in the data center who finally got permission to update the ESXi, you know, seven three F the late, whatever the hell the latest one is, because it has a set of CVEs it revolves. Is he supposed to anal analyze that update and go back to the S-bomb to see what's missing and figure out where there's gaps? <laughs> or does he deal with the CVEs in front of him that that update provides? And oh, by the way, he just finally got the downtime to do this. Yeah, so you may not know. So they say in the article, in the ESXi FreeBSD network stack, even the vulnerabilities with known CVE identifiers remained unfixed. The forked code was never tracked for vulnerabilities. So... That could be, even if VMware did release an update, if it wasn't being tracked, there could be an update available, and this is a hate, there could be an update for VMware that fixes critical vulnerabilities, but I don't know that because it wasn't disclosed because those vulnerabilities weren't tracked in the update. So they very well could have fixed it, or maybe they didn't fix it. In either case, I don't know as the user. I imagine that their GitHub commits right now are just a mess. I imagine their devs hate every bit of life. <laughs> 
the other problem is that the the VMSAs, the the VMware security updates, oh. have to be done through VMware, and those come through different channels and are very extensively tested and take forever to get out sometimes. So, mm-hmm. did VMware to kill most of their work VMware workstation uh, engineers a year ago or so? Did they hire back? I think they uh, I think uh, they outsourced it overseas, right? Yeah, they did or they did kill a bunch of engineers. I don't remember which division they were with, but it was I think workstation. It's thing is it is workstation. And I don't uh, did they uh, affect um fusion as part of that as well? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Imagine. Fusion so and the workstation probably all were desktop basically products. they they, yeah. they wiped out the engineering staff in the US, sent it all to India, and those the, the ones they sent it to were not uh coders. As far as I know, they were support. So they're there to support, but workstation is slowly mm-hmm going to decline. And I wonder if this is related to anything like that. Oh, God. If that means all of us have to use VirtualBox, just shoot me now. Oh, God. Because, yeah. Tyler, yes, Tyler, Tyler, Tyler actually was like, dude, friends, don't let friends use VirtualBox. Because Oracle, like, Oracle doesn't want anybody <laughs> to use VirtualBox. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's their product, right? I've, I've been saying that for years. So VirtualBox is so bad that Oracle doesn't even want to support it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <clears throat> I ran into some issues with VirtualBox recently and I was like, Some? dude, no, You're don't. Left. Yeah, it's like, dude, don't. Um, I was going somewhere else with this, too. Oh, backporting. <laughs> the other danger in this scenario is VMware borrows code from FreeBSD. VMware makes modifications to said code, customizes it for their own purposes. Mm-hmm. FreeBSD then releases patches for the FreeBSD version of the code. Mm-hmm. I then have to take that patch and apply it to my customized version. Now we're backporting. What if that fix in my customized version doesn't actually fix the vulnerability? <laughs> yep. This is another aspect of this the like supply log, chain. This is like a log4j nightmare again. Yes. Right? Yeah, this, totally. this is another aspect of, of supply chain is that I have to make sure that me as the user, my vendor VMware, has accurately backported these vulnerabilities and fixes and, and, and tested them, to not just taking the FreeBSD patch, going, yeah, I applied it. But guess what? I made other modifications that that patch doesn't work maybe in all scenarios. And there's another scenario where that vulnerability is still exploitable because I've made modifications to the surrounding code, as an example. Yep. Yep. That happens. Yep. <clears throat> and it's one of the dangers of open source software. Now, I, I will. I'm going to really be an open source zealot in this. I mean, I guess maybe I'm kind of, I don't know. I'm not getting curmudgeon about it. I'm leaning more towards the openness of open source software and keeping it open and free. More and more. Even as I get older, I'm more and more in this camp of this should be free. Now, uh, there was a post by, uh, Bruce Schneier made a post, uh, and this came from an essay published somewhere. Uh, I'm not sure. As opposed to not published anywhere. No, yeah, it was published somewhere. It was a published <laughs> essay that, that Schneier read um, that came from uh, another site called the Lawfare blog on open source uh, software. And in this article, they state, designing an institutional framework that would secure open source requires addressing adverse incentives ensuring efficient resource allocation and imposing minimum standards. I have to say I wholeheartedly disagree with any of those things as they're related to open source because I believe it's what is all the like open source software should be available to everyone and be free. Who's to say Mm -hmm. who gets more or less resources? 
this should be left to the community. Minimum standards is in direct opposition to the concept of open, open and free software. Uh, the, Minimum the, standards. The, jo- that- the Josh Wright version of de- software development mm-hmm. with AirTag Scan, like it did exactly what I needed it to do. Do you think there's any error handling in any of my crap? No. Yes, there is. Yes. If it breaks before you get to your presentation, Larry fixes it. <laughs> I'd love you, Josh. Because <laughs> you're, ac- you're absolutely right. But like have, that is the sole and complete error handling in any yes. of your code. But yes. if you put minimum standards on open source software, is it really truly open and, and free? No. At that point, I don't believe it is. And, but now the the counterpoint to that argument is, open source software is being used in critical infrastructure mm. and is critical to the operation of things like companies and other countries and other critical infrastructure within those countries. Therefore, the, like the the argument is, we need to put some rules and guardrails around that. I'm like, well, rules and guardrails are in a direct opposition to what open source is all about. You uh, should be able to not write- necessarily. How about how about how about a minimum standard for something that goes into production, or a minimum standard for something that's going to go into critical infrastructure, or a minimum standard that uh, production and uh, critical infrastructure production, or a minimum standard for something that's a life and and safety issue, you know, or operating life and safety equipment. In production, yeah, uh, you know, Josh, no minimum guess, standard for development, I guess but I'm a minimum okay with, standard to put it in production. I guess I'm okay with having a a certification for open source software, and if you want to code okay. to that certification or standard, mm-hmm. you can. I don't cool. think you should be forced to, right? Because it, then it defeats the purpose of being open. open. Right. But to your point, Josh, maybe there should be a like if we do write open source software that people are going to use, and we want to see it fully adopted or we've identified these projects that are should fall in this category we should make them uphold this minimum standard for security and reliability and maybe support and maybe that's a certification or special license and, for and I'd, open source software but it should be kind of optional and, and, th- and, and me thinking, about, yeah, absolutely. thinking about this too is that if you're going to leverage open source components in your commercial software which you should pay to have it brought up to that certification or yeah. you should be doing it to bring it up to. Or you should be working right. And because you're, uh, and depending on the license, because you're modifying said open source project, you should share that back with the community. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Depending on the licensing, of course, I understand that there's all different versions and all that type of stuff. But I think if, if that were the way we were going to approach well, that with the minimum standard, I think that'd be a very effective. It's a slippery <clears> slope, <throat> though, because you know you, you put uh, who says what software gets this, and like also where I'm going with that is, um, I think it was. Pi Pi came out. It uh-huh. was pushing for multi-factor authentication. I was listening to a podcast. I forget which Linux podcast I was listening to, and I apologize to whoever did it. Uh, the one I listened to, I really like. Uh, maybe I'll dig it up before the end of the show. And they were talking about how 1%, the top 1% of most adopted Pi Pi open source packages are now being mandated to enable multi-factor authentic- or two-factor uh-huh. authentication. And you think about that, and you're like, oh, well, it's just 1%. Like, how many, how many could that be? But, like, if there's, I don't know what they said, you know, hundreds of thousands of pipelines, like 1% could be, let's projects. just say, 1,000 projects. Yep. But now, every single one of the developers on those 1,000 projects has to enable multi-factor authentication. Every one of those top 1% in those 1,000 of PyPy packages mm-hmm. has probably... 
a certain percentage of those have more than one developer. Yeah. <laughs> right? So now let's say, you know, 50, 40% have one developer, but 60% have more than one developer. So you're talking about like on our, I don't know, maybe there's 3,000 people um, in the world, which is not a small number that now half are forced to use multi-factor authentication. So this is we get into like open, but there's responsibilities now to being open yeah. And free and is it open and free if you have some of those responsibilities i think some of the 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 real benefit in spirit in in why some of the software like is really useful for society is because there's no guardrails regulations yep. requirements minimum standards for for any you, of this. you bring that back to what was it the is it the, and i could like be the free make, beer the free beer analogy no i could be bringing this back to the the wrong you know mixing signals and so forth but you bring that back to what log4j and Log4j was written by, what, two volunteers who got paid, like, or two guys that got paid, like, $500, or they get paid absolutely minimum. And, like, one of them left the project, so there's, like, one guy left to maintain. And it's Yeah, like, use- what's that person's responsibility, like, for the greater good? Like, I yeah. just, I want to add these new features because I want to add these new features. Maybe that person wouldn't add those new features if there were minimum standards they had yep. to write to and all those error checking and security checks they had to go through to get it and multi-factor authentication. Like, how, how many of those people are going to be like, I, I, now what's the next step? I got to sign all my updates? Like, all of this is a huge pain in the ass, security mm-hmm. versus convenience. So, like, maybe I won't maintain it at all. Now, not maintaining it, maintaining it at all could have more adverse effects than maintaining it without the second factor authentication, in my opinion. Yeah, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit here, if you don't mind. Oh, I thought Josh was going to try and argue with me on that one. Secure doorknobs, Larry? I, I would, actually, but it's it's like, wow, that's, that's going to be a long discussion, man. Totally. Maybe we'll do a topic discussion on open source software. Yeah. So yeah, let's do the doorknob. Yeah, let's do, that uh, is but, it a doorknob or a lock or a? No, I, did, I didn't have that one. I wanted to I had do a lock. I had a mo- lock. I wanted to do my story number one. Let's do it. Let's do it. GPS Jam, uh, which is a map for uh, GPS and GLONASS uh, GNSS interference indications. So you may remember a while Indication? back. Yeah, what? that there's GPS jamming going on. So you may remember a while back uh, mm-hmm. that Mike Poor, Faith Alderson, and myself put together a project called Waylin. <clears throat> Effectively, what Waylin did was took the source from both GPS and compared it to another system, Baidu, GLONASS, you name it, on a local device, so that if GPS was being spoofed, you could compare it to a different technology and go, oh, these don't match up for my location based on different mm-hmm. pieces of hardware. So you, you get, you derive your location from different. Yes. Sources. You drive your location from multiple multiple sources, mm-hmm. and for corroboration, sudden, for corroboration, local to your device. And if something doesn't match, you could tell that one or more of those technologies was being spoofed and or jammed or something of the like. Um, and we released code and all that type of stuff. And we're going to build out some back engine and that type of stuff to do that globally. But turns out there was a uh, gentleman that was looking at some uh, ADSB exchange data and was finding tracking flights and all that type of stuff and you know military surveillance flights and he went and g- created uh, GPS jam which takes uh, publicly available API data from ADSB exchange meaning aircraft tracking uh, aircraft uh, ADSB beacons at 1,090 megahertz receivable with a $20 uh, RTL SDR. Uh, 
And uh, with ADSB Exchange, you run some software and it populates ADSB Exchange servers all over the globe uh, with the data that you can see from your QTH or your location. And then they populate their database and so forth. And what he was finding was that uh, the aircraft was also, so they would derive largely their location via GPS and they could tell when the GPS was out of sync with their other navigational data and would report so via ADSB. Hey, this is our location, but it doesn't appear to be accurate. So he parsed all of the data from ADSB Exchange from all these user submitted stuff and found locations in which you could determine where there was some potential GPS modification or map modification or jamming. And I thought this was awesome. Because that was a simpler approach. Use a, something that's already out there for um, the ability for us to determine this type of stuff with already well-known technologies that requires very simple hardware, even simpler than the stuff that we were using for Weylin. The part that disappoints me is there isn't a ton of coverage in some countries. And that's because... There are people in those countries or in those locations that just aren't populating ADSB exchange because they don't capture the data with a software-defined radio. So my challenge would be, and this is something that I've wanted to do forever, is RTLSDR is typically a USB-based device with the RT2832U uh, radio receiver or the Elonix E4000 and we'll, we'll not get into the subtleties. <clears throat> but instead of, instead of making a $20 USB device, I'd love to see a Raspberry Pi hat with an antenna. So you clip this board on the top of your Raspberry Pi and run some software on it. Heck, even in a pre-made image that fits on a 2 gig SD card that you can plug in a Raspberry Pi 0W or Raspberry, and so it gets internet. And now you can build up this massive amount of stations. The, the challenge here is that Raspberry Pi hat with an RTL SDR on it. It would take me probably a year to spool up to give it enough hardware knowledge to build that from scratch. So I pose that. Kristen Padgett, Travis Goodspeed. Um, actually, Kristen. Kristen would probably be the best one for that. Travis could do it. Yep. Um, so a, that, a challenge to our community. And Josh, if you know folks that would be interested in developing that, and I'd love to learn and help, like, please. Put, uh, put it, Joe put, Grand. Joe put Grand. Together. Joe yep. Grand. Yeah. I was going yeah. to say um, Joe Grand. So to folk, add to your list, I agree with your list, and I was going to add Folks Joe that put a, put, could put two great minds together to, to work on this project, I think, would be... Amazing, especially for Rick, quote, the the better oh. the better the the better social good, as it were. Dude, call Rick Melendick. He wants to talk to you anyway because he saw the portion of the show yeah, yeah. earlier. He's yeah. already tweeted. Yes, we're already doing this. Sweet. I'll drop a note to Rick. Call Rick. Call Rick Melendick and ask him. All right. So we can make this better, like, and provide services to multiple things at the same time, and no. you can make this part of a weather station. Put a weather station with this in it to yep. pull down plane traffic, GPS uh, data, and weather data, and uh, wow, hell, you'd be doing a public good. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think starting it small, because Josh, I look at the greater portion of this map, 
and I would want something that is very inexpensive that we could potentially crowdfund to send to many places. And I'm thinking, and I'm looking at this map, and much of it is what they would refer to as third world country. Can we get enough mapping in third world country? Like, Argent, and you know, some of these are not really, but the backwoods might be considered like Bolivia, Paraguay, Argentina. And almost the entirety, entire continent of Africa is absent of any AESB data. Johnny Long, um, can handle can, can get that done, or uh, maybe Chris Kubeka, maybe. Um, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll talk. I, I wanted to riff on the, the the hardware hacking aspect and <clears throat> talk about my story number eleven as well. I don't know if you guys had specific door. Did you mention doorknobs? Tyler did. Is yeah, it the, the new key? Yeah, the, the new key. key. Yeah, do, I I don't know if it's a door knob, but it's a door lock. Do they make actual yeah. <laughs> yeah, knob lock, whatever? <laughs> yeah, it's like I mean, it's like the Schluter smart locks, whatever. Yeah. So the NCC group did a fantastic job uh, evaluating. Like Larry, holy you and crap! I like so at a many doorknobs, very similar to this, and yep. had yeah, similar dude. findings. So so many vulnerabilities. No TLS certificates. What? No no TLS. <laughs> uh, Stack buffer overflow parsing JSON responses, sensitive information, sensitive information sent over an unencrypted channel, um, exposed test That's points. You don't want to see on a security device. There was an exposed test point on yep. one of the J chips that was JTAG. JTAG. Yep, there were several WD interface exposed, JTAG mm -hmm. exposed. Yeah, okay, it says that they fixed security. all of them by the 9th of June. Yeah. Well, good for them. Yeah, I was uh, very them. impressed with the the response. Often, when we disclose this to vendors like, like this, hard, yeah. like a lock vendor, they typically are not so. But how do you to how do you fix the exposed JTAG in the debug? Board? You don't. Uh, no, it's possible uh, through software. Can you block you, that through you software? Can, you, can. you can turn it off, right? Because uh, it's no, JTAG, no, you can, but you mean, can make it a snap off piece of the board. Nope, nope. So, so depend depending on your chipset. You can, in fact, software disable programming interfaces such as JTAG, but you can never turn it back on. It's like a one is a is a oh, interesting. A data diode. You're, you're Insta brick. Yeah. Yep. Through yep. software, you can yes. disable the. Yep. Through interaction with the, the processor, you can permanently disable. So even if it's broken out, mm -hmm. you can effectively disable the portions that you need to do the communication. But yeah. not like. But, but it's not available on every chipset. But yeah, but not like SPI. Like if it's a spy, no. yep. Flash, <laughs> right? You, can you disable? Right, so here's that? the question: can you Tyler, that would you not put one of these locks on your house? Well, that's a that's a. a we're going in an opposite I, kind of nerdy direction. I was in yeah. a nerdy direction, but Josh, you took me to a place where I also wanted to go. Would be like, what's your expectation of security and or privacy when you're using these locks? I think it affords. So my take is it affords you a certain luxury of convenience. I don't think I'm looking for the world's most secure lock. I'm looking for something that locks and is easy for me to unlock and, and lock mm -hmm. in my application, but not necessarily like I'm basically I'm not preventing or increasing my security level high enough that I want to proactively prevent someone from bypassing the lock getting whatever is behind the lock that is of, of value, mm -hmm. right, in this case. I mean, it, it could be personal safety as well, like that aside. If I'm locking something like my office, let's say, um, 
and or a garage or or whatever. Like I'm protecting what's behind the lock. I want to make sure that just no one can walk up and open the door. Now I, I'm also cognizant of if someone wants to destroy the lock or cause physical damage, mm-hmm. that's going to leave evidence behind that someone has accessed the space. Yep, and cause alarm. So then, like the the kind of the, like the third stage. So like it could be basically open with no protection. It could be protected enough that someone's going to have to physically bypass it. Like the third level of attacker is protecting against the the, the people like us. The sophisticated attacker. <laughs> A more sophisticated attacker, to Larry's point, right? Good terminology. That I can bypass this security device without someone knowing, I think is the real critical point, to be able to gain access to what's inside. Maybe I'm not stealing something. Maybe I'm just plugging a USB device into the whatever mm-hmm. computer is on the other side of that or, or whatever, right? Something stealthy. I'm stealing data that maybe also doesn't leave a trace necessarily. I mean, it does, but that aside. And then, and then leaving and relocking it. And so there's no trace mm. that a person has been there. I think most of us don't, like, in, in most consumers certainly aren't too concerned about that level of attack because let's face facts, that level of attack, someone's going to get in probably regardless right so that there's a there's a there's one more aspect to that so the the thing that i think about when i do this and the the reason that i do not have smart locks i have locks that do not have keyholes so they're electronic lock but they do not have smart capabilities is the privacy aspect if i am putting an application on my phone Mm -hmm. to unlock my door i'm more worried about the information leaking from that app and the vulnerabilities because this is a lock manufacturing company. Yeah, but you do have ones. Secure that app. But you do have ones. Do you use the Soho Mill ones, Tyler? I do. And, but those have those a key. Those have no smart. No, no key. smart. Mine. Oh, there's no key. Mine have, no, I use the same ones. There's no key. Mine has a key that goes underneath. It's a. Yeah, a, I, I got the do, one. Do they make the a model of Soho Mill? So, so if you search Soho Mill. On Amazon, I posted. I posted it in Discord. <clears throat> Thank you, Tyler. I bought this because I saw you post these before. But the model that I have, to your point, and I think this is a good balance to strike and a good context for this conversation, is that these do not have any smart functionality. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no Bluetooth. There's no wireless communications. There's no app. This is an electronic lock. Has a battery. There's a keypad on the knob. Mine has a key that goes underneath, which. Again, the angle at which the key goes in from underneath would make it super hard to pick just in the angle. Not a fun lock to pick. Not <laughs> a fun lock to pick. Not impossible. I'm not saying it's impossible, right? But again, I'm, I'm increasing my my resilience by if I do have that key. But you're saying these, they also make ones without a key? Here, yeah, the YL99s. Okay. Yeah, the YL99s are the ones that I've had for years. No and key. And they are the keyless ones. Keyless yes. ones. Is that one, Josh, is- your... This is a YL99. This is the one I haven't installed yet. Clearly. It has a keypad, and that's it. There's no... That is for a, a, an emergency battery pack. If your batteries die while you're gone, you can pull that plug, and it's a little barrel jack for a battery the, pack. That's it. There's no key. Yep. The other the other nice thing about these, and this is, this is the other feature that... This is why I have these on basically every door I own is they're auto locked by default yes. like you have to enter the you have to enter the code every time you open the door now that can get annoying for like kids your kids learn how to do it my three-year-old when he was three used this yeah so, my, my, so you can set passage mode. No, you can set passage mode so all they have to do is hit one key and any key and it'll one open. key and it opens 
And can you adjust the timer? Because my six-year-old, totally fine. With a little bit of practice, and a couple of times, yep. he enters the... I, I watched him. I watched him from the window. And, like, first time, maybe he gets it wrong. And, like, second time, like, he's in. Which is awesome. Because, like, if you, I mean, if you have dogs or you just want to make sure your door locks you every make time sure it shuts. Yeah. Locked. Yeah, it's great. Um but were you, can you adjust the time? The, no, I don't think so. Um, is the time but it's 4 seconds. It's a long time. They I mean, increased the time. The original ones was were 2 seconds. The older ones were were 2 second beep. These ones are now 4 seconds. Gotcha. And 4 yeah. seconds isn't all that long either, but no. you you, you got to be It's really quick. not, but Again, your the balance here is privacy. The app you'd have to install, mm. the ability for because on these other locks that we we're talking about in the story, a, a lot of the vulnerabilities were uh, insecure API calls, uh, unauthenticated API uh, sensitive information leaks. All of those pieces where stuff inadvertently that is not tied to my physical security at home or my risk profile profile i'm thinking of as i'm looking at a doorknob those are now things that i have to consider if i'm going to be putting in something smart additionally bluetooth low mm. energy when it's implemented wrong there's several uh, bluetooth low energy vulnerabilities as your as your threat changes and your threat profile changes perhaps even vulnerabilities being released for things like bluetooth low energy or the libraries that are leveraging those now you're having to think about and update all of your hardware within inside of your house that your family security then relies on and if your threat profile for you know work you're doing happens to change that becomes a concern i really don't want to have to think about it now. yeah and what i don't like about some of the deadbolt ones is typically on the inside of the electronic ones it's a knob you can turn. So just breaking the glass and reaching your hand through, you can turn that knob. Yep. I like, personally, I like the deadbolts that are keyed on the inside uh, in, in, in not on the outside, right? So if an attacker were to reach in, they couldn't just turn the knob and unlock the deadbolt. I, I personally... And if you small do that, like you're that, right? killing you people. Know. That's actually illegal. Wait, sorry. You guys were both talking at the same time. Josh and then Tyler. Mm. It's actually, I believe it's illegal or against code to install uh, double key deadbolts anymore. Interesting. Right. That probably in depends on your, your fire area. code. Yeah, it depends on your fire no, code. No, even in residential, it's it, it may not be illegal in residential, but your fire insurance will be very pissed at you yep. if you ever have a fire. Yep. Because you can't get out. Right. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> but that's not as fail secure. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I mean, Tyler, you were saying? No, I mean, that, th these are things that most people don't think about when they're looking for a secure lock. They look for the most expensive lock or the most technologically advanced lock, you know, something from a name brand if if they're trying to be super secure. And then you think about, like, what your risk profile is and, like, why you're considering those. And those of us that break into places, like, 99% of the time, all of those things are bad things. Mm. Like, just like you were saying, like, a double double uh, deadbolt, that's something that someone that's broken a window and gotten into place, that's something we would think about, not most people. So you really have to consider, like, as an adversary, you have to put that adversary hat on or a burglar, maybe not a technical adversary. Like, what is your risk profile? Are you in a high crime area? Like, what are their capabilities? It's going to be a, you're going to have a reinforced door. You're probably going to want a better deadbolt. You're probably going to want hinges that aren't going to come off and you want a window that's not going to shatter. Like, mm -hmm. these are things that you have to put an adversary hat on to think of, which comes back to like where where we provide our value in the industry is really giving that insight and thinking through the scenarios that other people aren't going to consider and then building solutions around those risks based on that risk profile or that threat. Yeah. And also preventing someone from 
credit card credit card well we don't use credit cards yep. what is the what yeah, is getting that? getting your uh your is it a shim? correct do you call a shim to get yeah uh, you got a traveler's hook you've got a traveler's shim you got a, a yeah co- yeah it depends on which one but you're these using. soho mills no, these, tool but or... these soho mills seem to be most when be, they're the better locks right? are resilient to the the traveler hook right Oh, yeah. these these ones. If you install it right and the plunger is actually set correctly, you can't traveler hook this one. I've yeah, I've got mine pretty heavy. It it can be done uh, with some other things. I've been looking at the solenoid they're using in this to see if I can actually reinforce this and offer them because I've, I've communicated with the the vendor. They're very mm-hmm. open to improvement ideas. It's which a really is why nice, I, I will I will say that Tyler also to your your uh, statement there. Like when you hold this lock, like Josh, you held oh, one up. Solid. Like this oh, thing, they're, they're is, this thing is solid. Most of the electronic stuff that you get that has Wi-Fi and all that crap on it, like it feels really cheesy. Chintzy. These yep. do not feel cheesy at all. Like this is solid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're they're heavy duty locks. I've tried to manipulate and break one that that I was sending back anyway. And even even the uh, you know the the break the doorknob and and fully rotate uh, because of the way the solenoid works uh, that vulnerability doesn't work on this lock. So there's a lot of mitigations that they put into place for something that I don't think they intended to be as secure as it was, but it is very uh, very yeah. nice lock. My bigger bigger question: You say solenoid tether. What about a big ass magnet? Mm. So I've tried that, and I can't because because it it sits in a top down. You, you plunge it, it rotates, and then goes in. The magnet just moves the solenoid up and down, and it's already in a, a top top down position. So I've not found a way to get the magnet to manipulate it. In theory, because it it twists and it doesn't engage mm. the plunger. Okay. Uh, until until the it's activated and then it then it does it all the way down. Uh, I've not figured out a way to make that strong enough to do. I like that it passed the Tyler test. Like that makes me really <laughs> confident about all these. Why do you think I bought them? Yeah, right. Like this makes me highly confident in these. I in said, these Tyler, houses. what do you use on your house? You put it in there. I bought them that day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, because you just moved into a new house, Josh. So I'd venture to guess you yeah. have these because that's what you're installing. Yeah, I installed it all I mean, over that- my friggin' house. Mm-hmm. They're great too because you can have multiple codes, and so I have multiple yes. codes set up for different family members. And if I need to change that, you know, I've got guests for a week. I put a password in there for them. I remove that password once they're gone. Like you get up to ten, and then you have guest and passageway entry. So like, there's just yeah, there seems easy. to be very little downside to these, and I should right. get a commission for all the ones they're selling. No, but in a, but I like them for internal uh, security as well. Good right. You got, oh, val- so you got valuables. My gun lock closet. Yes. Or you have exactly what I do. My if my firearms, the door to get into where the room that your firearms are, or your valuables, or your closet, or wherever you got jewelry safe or whatever. I'm like, you know what? To get into there, you got to get past one of these first. Master I haven't bedroom. Then, installed then it yet because I haven't built that out. room out yet. But yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, your master bedroom. Your guns are out. Like my guns are out everywhere. But if I need to put them away because kids are coming over, I can put them right. in the master bedroom. They're locked. That's a good place to have them. And I don't have to fiddle with a safe and a key and all the stupid stuff that, you know, kills people right. when and, people break in. And I and I got to tell you, you posted the link to these in Discord. And I expected it to be $200. Oh, yeah. They're not that no. bad. They're $46 right now. They're typically 50 yeah. bucks. Like that's what you'd pay for a good lock set 
Yeah. Uh, and I say good, meaning yeah, don't like, go to Home not, Depot and buy whatever's on the shelf. Like, buy these. You, you yeah, buy yeah, whatever's yeah. on the shelf yeah, at yeah, Home yeah. Depot, and you're yeah. buying a lock set with a knob and a. a, a you're key. still you're forty bucks. If yeah. that, if that, like yeah. I have some issues with some doorknobs at our, the home right now that somebody came up to the door and the door was supposed to be unlocked and they couldn't get in because they said the door was locked and no the knob was just all messed up on the inside yeah. and they couldn't open it because you got to jiggle the handle a little bit right yeah like don't, well, buy, I, don't buy quick set not, or anything like that yeah, yeah i'm so. still not sure why they don't use these more like from all my rental properties right like i put these there so i don't have to rekey like if i have a renter change out i change out the code like i don't have to do any of the the expensive stuff with keying like the the technology makes sense in the application that's applied just like just like Fido, this is a great example of we could be doing keyless that is so much easier, or passwordless yeah. that's so much easier, and spending less money, but we just well, don't. Because except these are passwords, you you must have like a uh, a one password or a last pass with all of your master codes in there because you don't want to lose your if you lose your master code, you're fucked. Basically, you can you can go through the reset process. I've done that on two locks now, and it is it's not horrible. It yeah. does take a minute, um, but if but you're you got to get it. You, you have to be on the inside to take it apart yep. to do the the reset you can't do the yes, reset if you don't have a oh, if you're locked out and tyler the one i'm looking at here oh it's the 99b has the backup mechanical key that's the one i, yep. I have the one with the backup mechanical key. my bad <clears throat> i just have the wild well, I've, I've never the, the batteries last the batteries last about a year and a half almost wow. two years I, I if even on heavy usage i can still get a whole year out of like the mm -hmm. rental the rental hallway and and, like, and that's fine and you're and you got those on some outdoor outdoor locations that are cold in the winter and that will oh, kill the battery yeah no and yeah i've literally the same batteries i replace the batteries every year and a half i order they're just double a's there's four double a's triple a's triple a's oh right. triple a's yeah. sorry yeah yeah and the batteries yeah. last it's, it's never had a mechanical issue <laughs> They're, they're solid as rocks, man. It's amazing that more people don't use them, honestly. They're cheap as dirt, solid as rocks, and they're not that hard to use. Like, so my, like, my four-year-old actually like, loves playing with don't it. Go with like, oh. Don't go with your smart locks. Go with these. I'm glad we, we talked through mm -hmm. all that. I think Lee needs to throw a story in here. I think Lee does, too. Lee's been awfully quiet. I'm sorry, Lee. Well, okay. So, <laughs> how, about, how about the... Uh, we want to talk about file FileWave MDM. No, no, I want to talk about Entrust. Okay, well, let's talk about Entrust. That's my number seven. Um, oh, I didn't. See back in June, uh, there was a cyber attack against Entrust. Uh, um, Wait, what is Entrust? What is Entrust? They're a PKI provider. They provide both products and managed services. For example, um, for the uh, government issued. Uh, PIV badges, HSPD-12 badges, one of the providers that mm -hmm. GSA uses is in trust. Uh, they, in trust. they do smart cards and stuff like that back in the day? Yes. Yeah, they do. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. And were, they do smart cards. They do, they do oh, encryption, right. signing, and authentication certificates, uh, OCSP, the whole nine yards. And so they had a cyber hack back in June, and at the time they sent out a notification to all the customers saying nothing related to our PKI operations was taken. Uh -huh. But apparently um, that there's there's got to be more to the story because it, it, it just popped up again today as being a big deal. Um, the reason I say that, I mean, like I said, you got a month ago, you get a notification that, yeah, part of our stuff is, is compromised and nothing to worry about. Um, now they're saying, hey, we, we're, we're doing some work to... Uh, 
investigate this further. We're not, we haven't figured it all out yet. That kind of erodes your customer confidence a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, because they're and, ransom uh, currently and they're trying to deal with it. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, they got data <laughs> stolen uh, as for the first part of the double encryption or you know, double ransom, whatever, double ransomware. And um, they had data stolen. They're claiming it's not customer data and it's nothing that, that uh, impairs a product. So no product data. Um, but what the heck have they but, got? But what? So what did they steal? Yeah, and, yeah they got and stuff. Then they're saying they got their employee and so, database. But, and it's fine. Got, we're fine. Yeah, everything's fine. Never mind the man behind the curtain. These aren't the droids you're looking for. Yeah, there's more to there's more to this story. But like similar right. to what we talked about with Leslie last week, when companies come out and say, "We've been hacked," and here's what happened. How hard did you look? Like, I, we, and we talk about this, not to go back to firmware, but we talk about this with firmware too, like, oh, well, there, there wasn't a firmware level attack. Well, like, how, how hard did you look? Because that, you got to really look very specifically to find this stuff. So when Entrust comes out and says, here's what was breached, like, how hard did you look? And you can't look in places where you're not collecting stuff. Like, if you're not collecting a certain type of logs on certain applications and or systems, you can say that you looked, but if you weren't collecting the stuff to look at, what it, what it, I guess it doesn't come down to what did you look at and what did you find. It's the due diligence of what were you collecting and what can you prove. Right. It's really so, ultimately, rightly, what it comes down to is what can you prove. Right. So yeah, and I, I completely agree with you. In the specific case of Entrust, um, they're service providers are operating at the federal PKI level. There's extensive auditing, logging, two-person, three-person, you know, all this, all of these controls in place. I suspect that infrastructure was just a little too hard to crack, so I'm wondering what they did get. Um, they, you know, because that's their bread and butter is doing this work for others. Uh, but uh, um I'm I'm questioning whether they didn't get source code or something that was actually worth worth something. Um, yeah, but you know, also to your point, Lee, and with respects to you know providing services maybe to the government, you also don't want to come out and say all the details because that could no. be too revealing. Like we know they didn't get into this particular infrastructure. Well, how do you know that? Well, that's classified. Mm -hmm. Now we oh. may say, well, that's bullshit, but also you know. The other part of me is like, well, they don't want to say exactly how they validated that because that would give too much away. And yep, I get that totally. too. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm thinking how many million certificates would have to be revoked if it, they got their root CA? Oh, God. No. Remember yeah. RSA? Do you remember RSA? Yeah. Try mm -hmm. Worse. RSA, hold my beer. <laughs> yeah, basically. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. But and, I mean, at the same time, that's a testament to how ssl and tls operates too the fact that you can revoke that you do have the ability to revoke is certainly powerful as well yeah okay mm -hmm. wait a minute let's be clear on this let's assume that a root ca any root ca gets compromised in such a way that the certificate chains that it owns supports whatever have to be revoked first off will the revocation actually work that many levels down nobody knows well oh of course it will shut up you don't know um, second, uh, 
how many offshoots of that root CA are being used in places that don't actually check the CRLs, the certificate revocation. Right. You ha- you how many- but you're right, Josh, in that you have to check that you're using a revoked certificate for one, mm-hmm. but also you have to check that you have the updated copy of the revocation list. How do you check that you have the updated copy of the revocation list? I ran into this in my latest blog post from Eclipsium. I'm like, how do I know? In my case, I knew because I was running Eclipsium software. And yep. There's an awesome researcher on our team that is responsible for that. Props to Fetty, right? Like, I was like, dude, how, 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 you, you track how I know. I haven't found anything that like discovers yeah. how I know that I don't have the updated list. revocation list. And this there's, is just one very specific instant that is related to secure boot. Josh, what you're talking about is this overarching concept of how do I know I have the latest revocation list for any type of secure communications? Paul, hold so my beer. How about embedded devices that never update? Right. If you're not yeah. updating, about, you never uh, get the right. You never get the revocation right. list. So how, about, yeah, how the, many embedded devices are relying on certificates that were installed when they were, you know, configured and, and <clears throat> deployed, provisioned, and that are never updated? I'll do you one better, Josh. I'll tie you back. To, I'll tie you back. Their to lifespan is three years. Who in the supply chain is responsible for updating the revocation list? Oof. You end up with a bunch of people pointing fingers at each other. Mm. That could be a bad day. I'll give you. I'll give you well, one. I'll give you one better. Zigbee, yeah, secure energy profile. Uh, yeah. The initial secure energy profile version one used elliptic curve cryptography owned by um, a fully owned subsidiary of RIM, and the uh, sorry the Zigbee consortium Zigbee Alliance said, "Ooh, we've got this all tied up in one manufacturer for the PKI, and what if they go bad?" And so SEP 2.0 used a modified version of TLS to do certificate distribution. Ah, go ahead, keep going. And because of the but? packets, because of the packet size we use within Zigbee, the modified version of TLS removed certificate cert, cert, uh, certi, certificate <laughs> certificate revocation lists <laughs> entirely. What? So once a certificate has been issued, it can never be revoked. It is permanent forever. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, so one of the one, but oh, hold on. One of the other podcasts I was listening to, a Linux podcast, was talking about this, and they were talking about uh, signing packages, right? Uh, and there's different levels of this. There's the uh, a checksum, and then there's signing, right? Mm-hmm. And so we're all familiar with the checksum, like Red Hat back in the day goes, "This is the latest package." And here's a checksum to validate that you downloaded the actual right package from that. And it's like, well, but if an attacker can control both of those, then I don't really know that what I'm downloading is what Red Hat intended me to download. But right. then it take it a step further. Who's validating that? How do I know I'm getting the latest either signature or mm-hmm. checksum for that? How do I know? Someone has to check that. Someone ha- has yeah. to figure out that wait, wait, wait that that checksum is invalid or someone has gained control of both the package and the checksum 
and replaced both. Someone has to realize that and then go invalidate either the checksum or the actual signature. And like, so like, is all of this just a bunch of hand waving and watch you know, next? We're all, yes, and we're all sitting around a fire saying kumbaya. So like we watch all, next as we, we all replace as regular kumbaya, coffee with crystals. Like we're all singing kumbaya around the fire, going, "Yeah, we all trust each other. It's great." But do so. Who's so here's the problem. The so, so there's there's two there's two problems. One is when it comes to root CAs, we configure they get configured and pushed into browsers and stuff. They're trusted without a CRL check. There and when gun goes bad, you have to move it to an, a non-trusted CA uh, spot. <laughs> Otherwise, it will continue to work. Right. Is what you're saying? Lee, it's um, not magic. People no. have to take actions to to push. So then, out depending these on if you've done that with intermediates, you have the same problem. When it comes down to the end entity certificates. That's not so bad. You're either pulling CRLs or you're doing OCSP. OCSP responses are signed, so you can tell if they're authentic or not. The uh, Krills aren't. They can, you know, that's a different problem, but they do expire typically in less than 24 hours. So if you got an old, old one, things start falling on their head. Hold my whiskey. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I didn't say it's perfect. Now you're talking. Wait, wait, no, wait. Sorry. I apologize. Bear with me one second. I'm terribly sorry. I will. Uh, now you're talking about the, what you've just raised just sparked something in my skull, which is not hard. You know, I can strike a match on this head. Anyway, um, it's, it's clearly not hair growth that it sparked. <laughs> well said, sir. So um, you, you've got the uh, the problem that when quantum encryption, see, Tyler's now off looking at how he can break a root CA just so he can screw with the whole world. Either he's changing but, uh, the master code on some of his Soho mill locks for some reason. <laughs> No, but seriously, when, when, when quantum decryption happens, and God knows when that's going to happen at this point, and somebody breaks a root CA, whether through ransomware, quantum mm -hmm. decryption, whatever, just doing the replacement of those root certificates is going to break significant chunks of our, infra our, 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 our country's, our world's infrastructure. That's fascinating. Because yes. it, but is it like a a race condition kind of thing? Like, what do you mean? Like, how does how does that work? When a if you've got to revoke, it takes going to take time for that revocation to pro, to be propagated into the the browser primarily, right? Well, okay. How many people use Internet Explorer six two years ago? Well, that's a different problem of... No, it's not. Well, it's another... No, it's not. It's the exact same fucking problem, dude. Because did Internet Explorer 6 get updated with new root CAs and new certificates after, I don't know, 1997? No, you're right. Or, 2007 same, or whatever. It's the same problem of we've, we've found an invalid signature or some certificate or hash that needs to be revoked. How do we propagate that down to people who are not... Or software that is not actively taking updates? That's your point, right? You can. Yes, exactly. It's a, valid, it's a valid point. I don't know how to solve that problem. How, do, how yeah, many like, XP machines do we find on pen tests still? Every once okay. in a while. What's that? Every once in a while. Not as many as right. I used to. No, no, agreed. And that's and that's why I'm using it as an example. It's not as many as it used to, but it's still every once in a while you find an XP machine, which end of life, what, 10 years ago? Mm. Okay. And you're still finding them for God's sakes. And it's not as rare as a diamond. It's every once in a while. It's not every day. It's not every week. It's not even every month. But every still six months, you them. find one. It's still a lot of them. But the point is, they're going to trust stuff that they shouldn't trust, essentially. Right. And so what do they make vulnerable just by trusting a root CA 
or a certificate that's a long life certificate built into the browser, built into the software, built into the operating system that should be dead, that should be revoked and checked and dead. And how will Zigbee fuck up all of our door locks and our uh, our home security systems that are wireless and Zigbee powered and whatever else? And and how will you know the mind boggles? Also, shit, I, I bring it back to also what about hardware that has keys that are fused onto a chip? How do you... How many infusion right, Like, But what happens if the holder of that key becomes compromised and now part of that key, <coughs> key system, if you will, has been fused onto boards and hardware? Oh Not my just God. in computers Paul, or laptops, but embedded devices as well. What happens then? If only there was a firmware company that could simulate these kinds of issues and situations <laughs> and could build out predictions of what would happen if, say... And trust had a bad certificate or right. was compromised. I mean, that, and that wasn't I, meant to be a point for Eclipsium, but but I think underscores a real, like, how deep this problem goes. It's not just yep. the hardware problem that I mentioned, but it's all systems, software, and hardware that trust certificates and or hashes or whatever, right? And you need to revoke those, and they're not implementing that revocation. That's... Okay. That could be like a really huge, like when people ask the question, what keeps you up at night? What are some of the major Paul. problems in information security today? I think we just hit on a really, really big one. This is a life and health issue or health oh, and I safety agree. issue, as they yeah. say in the UK. Yeah. This will kill people when there is an infusion pump that only has root CAX in it because that was like, you know, hard coded into the sucker when it was built. And that's, that CA dies. And so the entire hospital kills that CA across the browser. Their IT team is fantastic, rolls it out that night, and every infusion pump cannot get information back and forth because they no longer have a secure channel to do so. Mm -hmm. And due to HIPAA, they're mandated for a secure channel, so they shut down. This is going to kill people. Did you guys listen to the latest Darknet Diaries episode? No. The title is Ed. Guess who Jack interviews on this episode? Is it Ed Scotus? It is Ed Scotus. Yeah. Ed tells a story. I guess I'll. Sp- I, I have to spoil it now. I'm telling you, spoil it a, a little bit, but it was kind of one of those pinnacles. Teaser, I, teaser, not a spoiler. Teaser. It's a. There's. Uh, how do I say this without giving away? In any case, if you want to listen to the episode, like skip over this part. I, and Ed, I believe, has told us this story, and we've probably heard this story. We've probably regurgitated the story on the show, um, but I think it's exemplary of some of the things we're talking about now. When Ed was doing a penetration test against the hospital, compromised the system. This system was running software that interacted with a laser that could perform surgery on people. And found out that when they had exploited this system, that during that time frame, this particular system was performing surgery on an actual person. Now, fortunately, that person was not was not hurt. There was no incident there. But underscores this point of where Josh was taking, you know, you were taking this, Josh, was like there there could be significant impacts in the real world. And that, that was one of those, uh, you know, one of those times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a really great episode from, from Darknet Diaries on that. And of course, our Ooh. good friend Esco, Ed Scotus. How could, it, how could it be a bad, there's no way it could have been a bad episode when you have Ed on. Never. I miss that guy. We need to bring him back. I, know, <clears throat> I need to see him in person. We do. We do. I was thinking that I was listening to this episode. I'm like, oh. So nice to hear Ed's voice. We need to, yeah, props to you, Ed. 
Tears. Yeah, I, now I got to go listen to that episode. Great episode. Yep. And um, boy. Oh, right. and On also, oh, but Josh, also, you mentioned quantum uh, encryption. Yep. The so there ha- senators have introduced the quantum encryption preparedness law. This caught my attention because I'm yep. like, I, I got to see what they come up with here, right? And so the law, I mean, you, you read the title and you're like, okay. We're what like, story is this? Uh, my story number 10. Okay. You read the, the title and you're like, okay, like I get this. Like we know it's coming. Qubits and all the stuff. I actually listened to another podcast that was talking about quantum uh, cryptography and exactly how these systems are put together. It was really, uh, really kind of amazing. I couldn't do it any justice, but. They were talking about qubits, and the the whole thing was super interesting. And so, like, we, we know we have to prepare for this time when our encryption systems are, are may fall or will, as I, I think will fall is probably the right way to term it, uh, to quantum computing. And so this act, and the piece I pulled out I think is, is really interesting, Um it calls for every executive agency to create an inventory of all the cryptographic systems in use along with the IT systems they will prioritize for migration to post-quantum cryptography. They will also define processes for evaluating the process of that migration. So like a prioritized list of encryption that's used in the U.S. government Shit, I hope they protect that thing Good six God. ways to Sunday. Good God. And I'm not that, sure if that's exactly what they were referencing there. There's probably other aspects, I would imagine, to this bill. Um, of, of maybe some systems that are exempt from this process is kind of the, the, the way it, traditionally it may play out, you know, based on history. I can't imagine that it would be an all-encompassing comprehensive list. This must be compartmentalized. I, I don't know. You guys have comments on this, how this may play out? Because at the end of the day, this does need to happen in some capacity. Like there does need to be an evaluation of all of the cryptographic systems that are used yeah. in the U.S. government and going like, oh, okay, how, how are we going to make these all resilient to, to quantum computing? That's kind of scary. It's, yeah, I, I think they, they have no idea of the effort behind just that inventory. Mm. I mean, think about it. You don't just include your places you're using certificates like in your browsers. In the U.S. government, you've got certificate-based authentication. You've got derived credentials. You've got, oh, hey, how about SSH keys? That's certificate authentication, too. That's also cryptography. And, uh, well, we're going to have to replace TLS. We'll have to, what else are we going to do? There's a lot of work here. Yeah. And this is something you do over a decade. IT systems... I think it's one giant bucket, right? <laughs> like, yep. And probably the easier bucket to address from a nation-state security kind of level, right? When you get into all the other cryptographic systems that are being used that even most of us that are have worked in this space listening to the show may not even know about. You may know about pockets of it. Um, I, I got to imagine these are going to be... That information must be compartmentalized in a much different fashion because you don't want an all-encompassing list to just be floating around out there. That would be mm-hmm. bad. Oh. It's, it's an interesting quandary. I mean, we're, we're, we're always talking about asset inventories. 
we're always talking about know what you have, know what you have, know what you have. Um, and to have it to be ready for when NIST finishes their, they've got like eight finalists for quantum encryption algorithms in the, uh, they're, they're through the three rounds of uh, algorithms and they're, they're down to the, I think the eight finalists, if I remember correctly. Uh, but you know, you're right. An all encompassing list can be dangerous in the wrong hands. So where's the happy medium? I don't know. It reminds me of another article that I, I didn't add here too, but it was in reference to Huawei hardware in taking a, an inventory asset management of, if you will, of the entire country in us, right? USA entire country <clears throat> where we're using Huawei hardware. Where in proximity is that Huawei hardware to U.S. military bases? Because it was proven that the Chinese could have backdoors into this particular devices and firmware. And so, like, let's say a major teleco provider in Tyler and Lee's neck of the woods were to stand up towers, and those towers just happen to be in proximity to military bases, if there was a back door in the firmware of those devices on those towers. They could conceivably get telemetry on military movements and or signals from military bases. And, and there was a, actually a, a bill that I believe was passed that put aside something like, I don't know, billions of dollars, right? Two, let's just say it was $2 billion that was put aside to replace that hardware. When they went out to the telco and communication providers, they were like, yeah, it's more like four billion, like double that, and that's how much money we need. Oof. And so they didn't get approval for the like doubling of that bill. They're like, oh, we're just going to take this two billion and, and distribute it to people and replace some of it, but that only solves half the problem. <coughs> so that was kind of interesting and, and somewhat related mm -hmm. as well. Not enough money to go around. Ah, oh, bye, Josh. Who just dropped, Josh? Yep. Yeah. We just lost Josh, yes. We lost uh, Josh to a uh, denial of service uh, yes. <laughs> by child. In infant denial of service. Uh, child, yep. My story number 16, Vulnerability Spotlight, how code reuse issue led to vulnerabilities across multiple products. Um, Cisco Talos team found a vulnerability in what turned out to be Broadcom uh, software used inside of a web server, I believe it was a web server or web CGI application, uh, CGI helper function more specifically. And they, they traced it down and they, they figured out there was some comments in the source code that 2005 Broadcom Corporation produced this code that had a vulnerability. And you can read the nitty gritties of the, the vulnerability in in the article um but the particular device what's interesting is the particular device that they were testing was not was vulnerable to this like on the back end mm -hmm. but the front end was filtering out the url structure they needed to exploit it mm. but they took that original code from broadcom and used oh what was it called the the github searching engine i believe was the one used in this one they basically found other projects that were using this particular software and were able to like exploit the vulnerability and they they traced so basically as we've seen larry in 
uh, embedded systems that there's a lot of code reuse. So it turns out like a bunch of other folks use this vulnerable code from Broadcom, even though the device they were testing had some mitigations against it. They oh. went to DDWRT revision 32270 uh, to revision 48599. Specially crafted HTTP request can lead to memory corruption. And was like, they're actually vulnerable to this because they use that code. Asuswort firmware had this particular vulnerability. Ardu Pilot AP Web had wow. this vulnerability. And they found four different projects that got four to five different CVEs because they were using this shared code. And that was awesome. Hmm. It's a memory corruption vulnerability in, in the HTTPD's unescape function of fresh tomato. I don't think that's related to tomato software. This was from, from Broadcom reusing that module. Fresh tomato. Code reuse. <clears throat> what was interesting, it wasn't in the device they were testing, but they were like, what else uses this software? Turns out four, four things. Four things use that <laughs> software. Craziness. What I, what I thought was interesting is when they were describing... You know, they, for example, they always assumed there were two characters after this percent in an escape URL. Correct. And I could just see a developer saying, well, who would do it wrong? Right. Um, Why would anyone specially craft that request? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it was probably far enough along, long enough ago that it was written that that actually was a semi-valid argument. But I can, I can just hear it in my head, and, it, you know, obviously they won. Um, but I, I often but, find that to be the case. You know, Lee, to your point, right? Like this code, the copyright is 2005 as they describe in their post, right? Mm-hmm. Once someone writes code that works on one of these small embedded or IoT devices, that code gets reused. Um, one of the tweets I sent out was a quote I found somewhere that said, firmware is just software that's inconvenient to program. Mm -hmm. That's applicable. That's really funny. But it's also true. Inapplicable to this situation, because once someone writes code for one of these embedded systems, again, it, it is it's inconvenient to program, right? Mm -hmm. Small, right? Small memory spaces, weird processors, right? Like it, you know, the the whole environment is is tricky. Uh, you're not on an x eighty six sixty four based CPU, yep. right? Like you're on this really small device, and so once someone gets code that works, that code gets reused. Yep, and that that code could have vulnerabilities, but it keeps getting reused because it's inconvenient to program. Well, honestly, uh, you know, I was in college in, you know, around 1994 to 1998, maybe a little later. Uh, but one of the first lessons that I learned in my C programming class and a few others was that all good programmers reuse code. Mm -hmm. So we're Dude, right. That goes back to the 1960s at MIT, and I've given this example before, it's pertinent to this conversation. Even before you and I learned programming mm -hmm. in school, um, in the 1960s on mainframe-based computers when it was all punch cards, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. shared code, you would write software on a physical punch card, and if it worked really well, or maybe not, if it worked, right, you'd take those punch cards and you'd stick it in a drawer. And if the next person came along and needed to write some software that 
had to have the same functionality as you wrote, they would literally go into the drawer and pull out your punch cards and use those as part of your program. Mm-hmm. So like code yep. reuse has been in Lee, existence Lee can, since Lee can software spe- existed, right? Lee can speak to Lee this firsthand. Speak to that. Lee can speak to that firsthand, right? right? Yes, I can. I most definitely reused code I wrote and others wrote when I was working on punch cards and beyond. Although I was thinking about not that many years ago, although it's probably longer ago than I thought, when <laughs> I had developers telling me, you know, before I write a line of code, I go search the internet for something mm-hmm. similar if I can already use it. And this isn't just for small systems. This oh. is for anything. Uh, see, I, um, I see you also program in Stack Overflow. Yes. <laughs> well, this actually may predated Stack Overflow, oh, though, sure. if I remember. Sure. So uh, it doesn't invalidate the Stack Overflow cop. Nope. Mm-hmm. To uh, to uh, add some more background to uh, Paul, you mentioned Fresh Tomato. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, so Fresh Tomato is an update, allegedly, to Tomato. Oh, interesting. Uh, which was written by uh, Jonathan Zerat. It's been developed through the years by open source community. Fresh Tomato is the current most up-to-date fork of Tomato and has about four to five releases a year. So it's, quote, a fork of Tomato. Because Tomato... One of the reasons we didn't like Tomato was because it was based on the open source code that Linksys had to open source yep. to comply with the open source license that they had As used. opposed to a complete rewrite. Right. And so they took the open source code from Linksys and tweaked it and called it Tomato, but it was based on Linksys's <clears throat> original code, yep. which wasn't that great. Right. Now, the only thing that ultimately where tomato succeeded originally is when we started with the limited ram and flash devices right. which uh which open word could not support yet tomato could correct again like basically more inconvenient to program right. <laughs> in right. those smaller smaller spaces yep um Wrapping it up, I wanted I to talk so. about how I revived, uh, well, an article, how someone else revived three-inch computers uh, with Chrome OS Flex. Have oh, you guys tried man. Chrome OS Flex? I saw this the other day, and I did not get a chance to try it, but I was intrigued. So apparently, I didn't know this till I read this article, uh, Google has made available Chrome OS Flex, which... They say, try the cloud first, easy to manage, and secure operating system for PCs and Macs. Chrome OS Flex is a sustainable way to modernize devices you already own. It's easy to apply, uh, deploy across your fleet or simply try it to see what a cloud-first OS has to offer. So this is a free, what they tout as a free upgrade for your PCs and Macs you've been waiting for. They are secure, boot fast, don't slow down over time, update automatically in the background, and can be managed from the cloud. So this is basically Chrome OS for the old crappy hardware you have laying around. Yeah, to extend, the, to extend <laughs> right. their life because they're moving everything to the cloud just like a Chromebook does. Mm-hmm. Now, I got, a, I got an interesting one to try because we picked up a Chromebook about three and a half years ago. Uh, might be close to four years ago, and uh, it became quote the family Chromebook. Like you need to, we used it during the pandemic for karate because we threw yeah. Zoom on it, and you throw it in the living room, and you do Zoom on it. And originally, the purchase was uh, so that my wife could check her me- email when she went to um, Australia for three weeks, and sure. like 
if she dropped it, oh god, oh no, it was a two hundred dollar. It's small. Chromebook. It's light. <clears throat> yep, it was a two hundred dollar Chromebook. Yep. Um, she checked her email on it, and, like traveled across the world type of thing, and it got used for a bunch of that utility type of stuff. Like we went on vacation last week, we brought it on vacation so my wife could check her email because she's like, I don't want to bring my seventeen inch yeah. laptop that I use all the time to just check some email like once while we're away. Mm-hmm. And the last time I turned it on, said. Your Chrome OS is no longer going to receive updates. If you want updates to your Chrome OS, you need to buy a new Chromebook. Mm, and now I'm like, huh, Chrome OS Flex? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it does work on older Chromebooks, too. Is that... I don't know. Yeah. But I'm going to try to find out. <clears throat> I know that in the studio, we have some, like, i3-based laptops. Hmm. And running Windows on those, like, you just want to poke your eyeballs out like it is so slow and my initial thought was well i'll put linux on them uh-huh. i'll find some trimmed out like a zubuntu is one i've used in the past for like a trimmed down linux but even that like can get bogged down on some of these slower devices and i'm like that's kind of neat that you can have chrome os on these systems what, what interests me also is the, how they handle the firmware thing because Chromebooks largely run Coreboot, which is open source U mm-hmm. EFI. Uh, and Google actually has uh, their own EC firmware um, mm. that is open source. So your EC firmware controls like, you know how like your power button on your laptop yep. yeah, is you're a, talking a about button, this. yeah, and yeah. your screen and your battery. There's actually an embedded microcontroller that controls that uh, aspect of hardware. And, that, and that's open source um, and from Google as well. Um, so it's actually interesting. Like I, I applaud Google for going towards open source uh, firmware. I like open source firmware in the fact that if it's out there in the community, other people can work on it mm-hmm. and support other devices. Where oftentimes you get a commercial manufacturer, they're like, yeah, I made this laptop and here's your firmware update. And then like we're making a new laptop, so therefore we're not going to make any more firmware updates right. for the older laptop, right. which is where I like the open source alternative to go, maybe I'll get <clears throat> firmware updates in core boot or you know, open source EC firmware because they want to kind of backport and keep alive some of these older laptops. That begs the question, how long do you want to keep your laptop? What's a reasonable expectation for keeping your laptop to keep these yep. things you know, up to date? You know, uh, I, you know, I'm thinking about this and you're saying this old stuff and I'm like, I got a whole bunch of old stuff and I weeded out a bunch of old stuff recently that would have been fun to test this with. But now I think about it, I'm like, I still have a whole bunch of old stuff. It's just not as big as a laptop. Like this would be killer if they ported this to ARM. Yeah. And it could mm-hmm. run on a Raspberry Pi. That would be a really <coughs> cool port of this. I that agree, would be, Larry. Wow. Or I even mobile. Like all those yes. mobile phones that sit around doing nothing. Yep. Yeah, to break the heart... Uh, but there's some hardware stuff that you'd have to break, right, to get on some of these mobile phones, and that's super hard. There is a there is a, a pen test distribution. Is it Kali? You can get what is that called? Oh, the one for what? tablets. Phone Pie. Net Hunter. Uh, there's a there's a a project. Net, hun- Net Hunter. Net Hunter. Yeah, there's a couple of projects out there, right, that will allow you to take your older. Phones and and tablets and put a pen test device on. Those are hard. A laptop is nice because you got a keyboard Mm -hmm. and you got a mouse Mm -hmm. and you got a monitor, right? Like built into the whole the whole device, um, which is Mm -hmm. cool. Yep. I mean, arguably they've got talent to be able to write an operating system with Android and such for for ARM for the phones. I think that would be that would be a killer to have. 
Chrome OS Flex on a Raspberry Pi. I agree, because I like the ability to have <clears throat> a graphical window manager. Yep. The one from Raspberry Pi is great, but I still feel like it demands a lot of resources mm -hmm. to run on that level device. You could, If you could slim something down even more to give me a graphical interface <clears throat> on that Raspberry Pi... Yep, that would be awesome. Yep, I you I I'm sure you remember uh, a number of years ago. I wanted I didn't want to pay the Apple tax again, so I moved. I grabbed a Chromebook and put Linux on it. Yeah, and because Chrome OS was still not quite there yet, and I put Linux on it and tried to see if I could do Linux and Linux on the desktop. Like it didn't work, but I think <laughs> that with the apps available on Chrome OS now. I could make a good run at having most of the things that I need to do on Chrome OS. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. It supports Mac Mac hardware too. Like that mm -hmm. opens a few possibilities yep. of things I've got laying around. Yeah, like a bunch of stuff I just recycled. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, all that stuff we just sent away. Mm-hmm. 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 Yep. And and obviously but, Intel Macs mm -hmm. only, not M1s or M2s. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They did note that. Things from before 2010 might have suboptimal performance, and it wants 64-bit hardware. You know, that's reasonable. <clears throat> yeah. The Raspberry Pi 4 is 64-bit hardware. I can deal with that, assuming you can get one, right? right? I've got, I think the only thing I have that 32-bit is an old netbook that's around here somewhere that's still 32-bit. But mm -hmm. it's my it's a backup controller for my Christmas display. I don't think it matters. <laughs> it is. I, yep. What is the Linux uh, gaming thing? It's a stream something. Stream Deck. It's not a stream deck. There's no, another. A, it, uh, there's I, another device. I was listening to these Linux podcasts, and they're all buying these Linux oh. stream Linux stream. I, I keep getting it Linux confused. Stream. I keep getting it infused with the the Nintendo Switch. Yeah. What is that called? Uh, uh, Steam, Steam Deck. Deck. Steam Deck. There you go. Thank you. It's a Steam Deck. What is the Steam Deck thing? Now we're on these like weird Linux devices. Yes, it's a gaming device that's based on Linux. You like you run Linux on it and you can play games on it. It's a Steam Deck. I keep getting confused with a Stream Deck. Stream Deck. It's a Dream Steam. Deck, yeah. It's a Steam Deck. Yes, and it's from Steam. It's funny. I saw somebody in one of the Discord channels that I'm in, and I'm, uh, a Discord service I'm in. I'm like, oh, my, my my Steam Deck got approved. I'm like, wait, I bought my Stream Deck like months ago, and they're readily available. Oh, here <laughs> we like, go. Oh, so it's an, it's an AMD APU, a Zen 2 4C8T, 16 gigs of RAM, eMMC storage, NVMe storage, game controller, 1280 by 800 pigs. This thing looks friggin' awesome. And I, I bet you this, Kali is going to be on this friggin' thing, right? Like, this is totally uh -huh. a little handheld. You just, you just got to get it in enough hands. It's, it's along the lines. All the Linux nerds are all raving yeah. uh, about this. It's, and a, it's I, along I, the lines of the flipper zero. You just got to get it in enough hands before the right. incredible right. hackery begins. Not to say that there isn't already incredible hackery around the flipper zero. It's even more so once it gets in more hands. These things are really cool. Like, I really want one. So, I think we should wrap it up, Paul. Oh. Yeah, I think so. I did have one question for Paul. Yeah. Or maybe Larry. 
Yeah. You mentioned with those small computers that the, the window manager they put on them is really heavy. And I think back to when I was running X11 R4 on things with less horsepower than a Raspberry Pi. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's funny how but the window managers was much, much less advanced, yep. much snappier too. Well, you know, those didn't have to run Chrome. I think, that, <laughs> I think that's really what it comes down to. They didn't they, even have to run Netscape Navigator. They didn't have to run this thing called a browser. <laughs> yeah, and the the browser's like an operating system on top of the operating system. And you oh, know what's yeah. interesting is when you know we do these broadcasts. <laughs> Sorry, all, but it's, it's a great good. point, Lee. Like oftentimes the process that bogs things down isn't the internet bandwidth yep. it's the cpu because if you're running a browser and you're running something riverside or zencast or whatever inside your browser that's taking up so many resources if you got other stuff running the reason you're lagging is because your freaking cpu is pegged at 100 percent unless you've built like a real freaking workstation a lot of these laptops just freaking bog down mm -hmm. max included I, and like I, I don't have that problem because I have a AMD Threadripper with 24 cores. <laughs> totally not a problem in my world. Right? It's plugged into the wall. It's plugged into the wall and has Ethernet and the whole. But the Ethernet, the again, the bandwidth isn't the thing. It's a CPU. Android. I'm, I have 256 gigs of RAM. I built a ridiculous workstation. I don't have those problems. But if you got a laptop or whatever other system that doesn't have those specs, it's Chrome Lee that bogging stuff down maybe not even your window manager right there's some browsers and there's some browsers that know how to do memory management yeah which one of those tyler not on windows 11 tyler and i have a very similar surface pro 3 i really like mine tyler you went to windows 11 you're like holy crap this is bad and it's it is, cpu it is almost unusable that's that's bad because that's not a bad laptop it's really not. It's an expensive ass laptop. It's really nice. There's an i7 with either 16 or 32 gigs of RAM in the freaking thing. So like, I, it's not a bad laptop at all. Yeah, yeah. It run. It runs worse than my netbook does at this point. Oh jeez. Yeah, it's bad. With that, with that, thank you everyone for listening and watching this edition of Ball Security Weekly. Larry, take us out. Over and out. <laughs> <laughs>